Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, don't you know? And joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very good, Darren. Darren, how are you? Ah. Uh, are you doing well I'm this fine. morning? Let me ask. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, you know. you respond. Get... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, um, as listeners may have guessed from the uh, really half-hearted Minnesota nice attempt that I made there. Oh, we are talking about the conference. <laughs> just ambient Darren noise I, yeah, no, I felt I did not, bad don't because you know. I wasn't kind of playing along but I, I, <laughs> I, was, I was you I were was, doing a better job than I was I figured, um, I figured I'd, I'd just set you up to say you betcha <laughs> you betcha <laughs> yeah. and, and, that, and I would we somehow don't talk about how we're going to start the podcast no it's before. all improv unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> it's all terrible improv like 90% of improv yeah, it may 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 surprise listeners to discover that no, this is not a scripted podcast. But yes, we are talking take, about to sell first take, <laughs> first only take, take only take. Yeah. yeah, we're like Anthony Hopkins. First take, good enough for us. Thank you very much. Um, but yes, we are talking about the Coen Brothers Fargo, which was released about twenty five years ago, uh, back in March nineteen ninety six. And we have two spectacular guests uh, joining us for this discussion. We have the wonderful Stacey Crowden. How are you, Stacey? Hi. Uh, I'm I'm okay. That's me trying to do the Minnesota thing. I don't know. That's that great. That's not how I talk. It's better. You're better. You're, it's okay. You're so so, <laughs> so far firmly ahead of the two candidates that we have. If we have any <laughs> listeners from Minnesota who want to tell us like how well we did, we don't want to know. Like, we, <laughs> we we understand that like we're not going to get it. Like w- w- watching watching the movie Calvary that's based in Sligo. Like listening to people come out of that cinema saying that's not how we talk <laughs> at all like and it's of course it's not why, why, why would somebody waste their time learning to speak like you um sorry it's <laughs> um, great i've had people tell me that i don't sound like an irishman i'm not convincing as an uh, irishman some, is, is... some of our some of our listeners <laughs> appreciate our irish accents which is strange yes. because i most you... most of the feedback i get in <laughs> ireland is that i don't have one um <laughs> but uh, to our <laughs> listeners we are lilting um, and we have a second guest, the wonderful director, Renuk McGregor. How are you, Renuk? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was um. pathetic. <laughs> no. I'm sending off Fair. cats at my door, so I'm, I'm temporarily oh. distracted. That's why there's this clawing sound on my, intro, my end. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No worries at all. Um, so yeah, Fargo is generally regarded safely as one of the classic modern movies, one of the modern classics of American cinema. It is universally beloved. It was a massive breakout hit. It won a bunch of awards. Um, it spawned a TV show. It is like one of the rare movies on the 250 to be an actual franchise that is not a superhero franchise, which is quite remarkable uh, of itself. It is a piece of landmark cinema. It was released in the mid 90s. Um, and I think Question for everybody here. Do we remember the first time that we saw Fargo? What our memory of that was? Was it the first Coen Brothers that we saw? So, Renuk, uh, do you remember the first time you saw Fargo? It was in third year. Um, I was 14. And again, my beloved Cassidy's video store in Dundalk provided me with 
Um, I can't remember if it was the first Coen Brothers film I saw, but it definitely was. It was it was in and around the time of Brother Earth Thou came out, and I think it was sort of the first big introduction to their their oeuvre uh, as filmmakers. So it was definitely it definitely left a really big impression. So much so that I printed out the the kind of poster and stuck it on my desk to much to the bewilderment of the St. Louis Secondary School classmates as to what the darn tootin it was. Sorry, as to what the was. <laughs> Go Bears. Um, yes, we are. Where uh, is that going to be the what, 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 yeah. what is it going to be? Which, which, yeah. which flanderization will I be using? Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. Oh darn it. Um, <laughs> oh gee. Jeez. Ah, jeez. And Stacey, do you remember the first time you saw um, Fargo? Yeah, yes, sort of vaguely in that, yeah, I was certainly a teenager. I would say it was possibly transition year, so I was probably around the same age as Renuk, and I think it was not quite what I expected it to be. Like, it was a film I had heard of. You know, I didn't really know much of the Coen brothers at that age. I, I wasn't super familiar with their oeuvre, but I had this sense that it was this kind of crime thriller set in a snowy town. And watching it, I was just so blown away by the fact that Marge was this very competent female police chief. Like, I didn't know anything about her going in. Uh, I was really delighted by her characterization, by her competence. Uh, but just what a wonderful character she is. And just her sort of very chipper, upbeat attitude. I was like, this was not the kind of police chief I was used to watching in movies at all. Like, uh, even if you think of it, you know, in terms of 90s crime movies, you have like Clarice Starling from the FBI, from Silence of the Lambs. But usually you had something more like The Guys in Seven, where you have, you know, young cop, old cop. And they're both dudes. super cool with their emotional issues and their sketchy pasts. And even if they are female cops, it's like she's tough. She's not going to let anything stand in her way. She, you know, it's the niceness is sort of the the really great surprise, and still is the great surprise and the refreshing element of her character in in that role. And I I think in it really is in Fargo. There's nobody really holding Marge back or or giving her the kind of permission to do her yeah, her yeah. job either because with, with, with Clarice Starling in this department we like... go by the book exactly yeah <laughs> it, in 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 Silence of the Lambs it feels like Starling's been kind of given the opportunity and 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 that she's been chosen um for reasons that don't have to do with with her kind of uh, ability with, with, with her ability and that she has to kind of succeed in spite of um the the system that she finds herself in i guess Whereas yeah this, yeah yeah Sorry. no i was just gonna say there's no gendered resentment towards marge yeah, it doesn't yeah. seem like any of the other police officers who are male have any issue with her like with her pregnancy even you know they're like yeah, oh here's yeah. the pregnancy how are you doing like how are you feeling? it's really <laughs> lovely it's a really stark contrast i think that's what you're gonna especially get your husband as well is like you know just the he could afford the opportunity and, and take that kind of easy road with that character to give her extra bits of tension by this husband that wants her home at a certain time and doesn't want her working mm. for the forest. But I, I remember reading that, um, and this, th this was something that, um, 
that really stuck with me across the the viewing I did this week was uh, John Carroll Lynch and Francis McDormand together devised a backstory for their characters where they had met on the force and they were going to start a family together. So somebody had to leave the force and it was, they both decided Marge was the better candidate. So that's why he's friendly and he's at, at home in the police station and things like that. And it kind of makes sense uh, mm. that, that he would go and, okay, I'm going to go and be a stay at home dad and paint my ducks and <laughs> my paintings <laughs> for stamps. And I just always think that's so sweet. And it's an example of, that kind of supportive marriage and supportive characters that in those roles you don't see either. You always see gendered discrimination or some kind of, um, you know, that old chestnut of the husband that wants her home at a certain hour. And it's just that even that is feels very refreshing and um, radical in a weird way. Well, is, is that a dr- dramatic tension, I guess, that's easy to kind of um, uh, reach for? Like we 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 did we did Incredibles too, right? It was the 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 the, the kind of um emasculation the Mister Mom the weird Mister Mom yeah. plot that they give like where it's yep he's a competent father that is his arc that is a remarkable <laughs> thing for the superhero man to be doing. I mean, like again, <laughs> I, no, but I I, li- I like that they shift the emphasis to 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 Bar. Like I like that they make it her movie, but it's weird that you get this kind of nineteen fifties. But what if a man stayed at home? Bar, like like Bar and Star. Maybe that's maybe that's. <laughs> um, I can understand where that would <laughs> come from. It's a similar kind of an accent. Where are they? Yeah. Wyoming. Or... <laughs> but um, sorry. Uh, but anyway, to bring it back to, to Fargo, though, uh, which is kind of interesting because yeah, Fargo arrived at a very interesting time in the Coen brothers' career and is in many ways a very odd movie to have broken out in the way that it did. Obviously, the Coens had established themselves as kind of indie directors with movies like Blood Simple. Um, And apparently, just quick to note that it is very hard to find the original edition of Blood Simple. Mm -hmm. They've gone back and they've recut it. They trimmed performances that they didn't like, which I imagine has to be vaguely insulting to the actors. (laughs) And most of the editions of the movie that you see today are the Coen Brothers recut special edition of Blood Simple, which is fascinating because it doesn't attract... It's not like a George Lucas, is it? It's basically they start... That's it, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say there. Like, you have all this tension over George Lucas' Star Wars. Where is that over the Coen brothers' Blood Simple? But then you have them working on... And you have this thing that happens throughout the Coen's careers where it, it they frequently seem to produce movies in duologies, which, again, because they're the Coen brothers, kind of fits. So they're working on Raising Arizona. They have trouble with that script. They go off and they write Blood Simple. Sorry, they write, sorry, um, Barton Fink, which is a movie that is about writer's block. And they produce the two of them together. Uh, Raising Arizona becomes a cult hit, so to speak. And Barton Fink goes to Cannes, where it sweeps. Um, It wins the Palme d'Or. It wins Best Director. It wins Best Actor and establishes the Coens as arguably the great American filmmakers of the 90s. You have that thing in the 90s where the studios go, these guys, they're good. We should give them a bunch of money, let them do whatever they want, and tell them to make a four-quadrant blockbuster. They get a $25 million budget and they go and make the Hudsucker Proxy. By all accounts, the Hudsucker Proxy is an interesting experience for everybody who works on it. Um, The Coens themselves have talked about how they had no idea how to manage things like multiple units, shooting on multiple units at the same time. Deacons, uh, their cinematographer, said that he had great difficulty managing four different people shooting four sets of footage at the same time without being able to oversee it all personally. It is released. 
it garners a muted critical response. I think the consensus now is that it it's it's the perhaps the second weakest Cohen's film in the consensus yes. ranking of their work. Nah. Yeah, I, I, I like the Hudsucker proxy, but it is the one that's seen as the runt of the little up until up until Intolerable Cruelty came out. Which is I also like, like trade trade people who know about like the problems making it and stuff. You well, know, it, it's an odd movie. Like I like it, it but it's a movie, very but that's odd. It's charm. Yeah, like, what, I... what, what, what's special about these directors that they're given like all of this money in the first place if they're not kind of you know different and quirky yeah. and are going to do something yeah. different to what yeah. you know whatever movie director you have in a phone book is going to do. Okay, okay, Andrew, I am setting up an arc no, here. Sorry. Just, I... Just so we're... <laughs> I know you agree with in in. I, I'm 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 not I'm not I'm not angry at you, Darren. <laughs> um, what is that? I I like it, like it more unreservedly. Um, but no, like like I do. I but again, I I really like the Hudsucker Roxy. I think it's a fascinating film. I think it's what happens when you give directors like the Coens a blank check, a reasonably sized budget, and ask them to make a movie for everybody because it's a G-rated movie, uh, but it's a very odd one. Understandably, to put it frankly, America is not ready. America is not where Andrew is right now. Um, the Hudsucker Proxy releases. I liked it, it makes as a back- child. I think it might be one of the first Coen Brothers movies. I you think. also like toys. I yeah, would re- yeah. I would rate the Hudsucker Proxy purely on the. I'm getting off this merry-go-round line because that just cracks me up every time. And I, I do watch it every couple of years. Like it's not one I've gone like, okay, done. But I I really love its charm and its. Uh, 1930s screwball comedy. It's 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 just a a mess of different things, but it is really really charming. Yeah. Um. And it, it's released. It gets a muted critical reception. It earns back about a tenth of its budget. And there's a real sense of well, maybe these Cohen brothers guys got their shot. That's it. Nothing to do. You know what are they going to do now? So after the Hudsucker proxy, they go off and they do that Cohen brothers thing where they work on two scripts simultaneously. They work on Fargo and they work on The Big Lebowski. And I think that basically uh, Jeff Bridges, who they have pegged for The Big Lebowski, um, is delayed. He's got shooting obligations. He's working on some other movie that I don't think anybody has ever heard of and nobody particularly remembers. So Fargo is ready first. They decide to go with Fargo. And William Peterson Robertson, um, who was one of their producers, who wrote a book about like the making of their early films, remembers reading the script and begging them not to make Fargo saying, and here's, here's the actual quote from him. It's the weirdest, most bizarre, most inaccessible of all the things that the Coens have written. (laughs) And it's kind of amazing that it, it becomes arguably the movie that everybody expected the Hudsucker proxy to be where all of a sudden everybody is quoting lines from it. People are, you know, like people who have never heard of the Coens beforehand or yeah, are obsessed with it. Like at the publicity campaign for this involved, like the company doing publicity, sending out little kind of lingo, like little booklets of Minnesota (laughs) dialogue for people to quote uh, if they wanted to, or translate it like David Lynch's Dune, a kind of like a translation <laughs> key guide for it. Which Did I do. They have a coloring well. book. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't believe there is a far with the wood chipper um, and the thing. But no, I like I find that fascinating because I remember the first time I saw it was at like a Mooney family movie night when I was about ten. Yeah, yeah. Was like my my parents renting this from the video store, never having heard of the Coen Brothers before, and it immediately becoming 
And uh, to be clear, ten. my parents are not. Yeah, ten. <laughs> well, would that be about right age wise? Yeah, about yeah, ten but... years old. Ten. And my my. I I I think this is like a, a Mooney family movie night thing. Is just that there's people of all ages, and it's yeah. kind of like if if you're a child <laughs> and you stay in the room, that's on you. <laughs> that's your choice. Brace yourself. I mean, well, this was yeah, this was the same year that we did. Um, what do we do? We did like Starship Troopers as well. Okay. Oh my god, that, that must have been a real treat for you. <laughs> that was amazing um, as a kid, um, and I remember being confused that like people didn't like it. Uh, my parents seemed to actually really like it, which gave me warmth. But like, I think like, and my parents are not Coen Brothers fans. Um, I think like I remember showing them "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou" and that going down like a lead balloon uh, because they're like, <laughs> "What the hell is this?" But it's kind of amazing that like Fargo has that crossover appeal despite being such an oddity. Yeah, you know. And I wonder as well, because there's Miller's Crossing to that kind of, like that was, was that before or after Barton Fink? Probably around the same time, actually. Um, Let me pull up their filmography. It might have been 1990 or so, but. 1991, yeah. That that for me seemed like that signaled a particular style in their writing, very kind of singular, whereas like Hudsucker Proxy and Big Lebowski are sort of these collages of different things and different characters and they're really vast and have all these layers whereas Fargo Miller's Crossing just seems to have this very very kind of singular sparse um, storyline and contrast and that one I always wonder did it do well compared to 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 uh, anything else as well because that kind of set them up probably to be towards the Hudsucker proxy I imagine. I think it seems to have done well. Like, like I, I was listening, did as, as in certainly well, the it, Miller's Crossing. Miller's yeah. Crossing was a box office failure. It earned a little, <coughs> little more than five million dollars out of its fourteen million dollar budget. How, how much um, of that is it down was to studio well, though, was, and how well it kind of markets it? Because be, be, because I, I I think like a, a, Andrew, a lot of I, I'm not, I'm not picking on the Coens. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm not picked. Like, I want, no, I want I to make it clear. I am it's not... very possible to go on many sidetracks off this arc to Fargo. Yeah. I, I, was, I was listening to, like, Elvis Mitchell talk to Gabriel Byrne. And as he does, he kind of goes back and talks about kind of like previous roles. And it, 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 um, I, I think he referred to Tom Regan like a number of times. And, um, like, the, the, I think now at least, maybe maybe it's only because of the amount of success that Fargo, uh, that the Coen brothers have had, um, with 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 the likes of this and the Big Lebowski, that um, that people are going back and watching the likes of Miller Crossing, um, yeah. Miller's Crossing was always well loved by critics. Like it was, it yeah. was very well received. the The issue at Miller's Crossing is that it was overshadowed by Barton Fink. And apologies, I mixed up. It was the the two movies they did together were Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink. They got, I think, stuck on writer's block on Miller's Crossing, so made a movie about writer's block. But Barton Fink like swept can. Yeah, that yeah. was it. That was that was the thing that got them the ticket. It, Miller's Crossing was well reviewed, uh, but it, it was a box office failure. Um, which was which was a shame it's and a not surprise, entirely clear because it is kind of a blockbuster, you know. Like, it feels like I, a big, like, like, very in... commercially written, yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. it's a period epic gangster film in the ni- in nineteen ninety that like the same time that you had Godfather three, the same time that you had Goodfellas before you had the wave of Tarantino imitators. Now it's a very classical. Like I am not. This is not dissing Miller's <laughs> no. Crossing. I, <laughs> I am not I'm, crossing. I'm, I'm... 
The... <laughs> I'm sensing some history for a second. Let, let's draw a line under it. Darren and I are having some problems at the moment. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> we're trying work to work through it, but your your so your mum and dad still love you. Um all, all right, but uh, and Andrew, do you remember the first time that you saw Fargo? Yeah, I I think I was at Shaw. I was in like first year of of uh, St. Mary's with you, Darren. Um, and I think, I think, I, I, I think I remember a weird, unless there were, there was more than one version of the movie made, because I feel like at the end of the movie, it said, this was based on a true story. And that's the way I remembered it. Um, and I think I had some awareness of the time of it winning best picture, if it did. We had an argument one time about whether it won best picture or not. <laughs> Um, and you and were very, very convinced, if I remember correctly. Um, it's one of those. I was very I kind convinced of, love of whatever the right answer was. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it got nominated for seven Oscars, winning two. All right, it nominated and lost Best Picture and Best Director for Ethan and Joe Cohen. It won Best Actress for Frances McDormand. Nominated for Best Supporting Actor for William Hates Macy. Nominated for Best Cinematography. It won. You need to update the Wikipedia. <laughs> All right. Okay. I Sorry. love that, that we've entered the Andrew has like strong opinion section of the podcast, which Sorry. is always my favorite. Um, yeah, but Deacons won Best Cinematography. Sorry, Deacons got nominated for Best Cinematography and, and Roderick James was nominated for editing. I would argue probably deserved both of those prizes. Um, Roderick James with uh, Roderick James. quotation marks around it Roderick also. <laughs> yeah, um, um, but I, I will say actually, yeah, it, it won Best Screenplay, which has traditionally been seen as the home of the cool Best Picture winner. You know, the Best Screenplay categories are generally seen as the writer's categories and so tend to be perhaps cooler than these picture categories. So historically, I think Pulp Fiction won Best Screenplay mm-hmm. the same year that Forrest Gump won Best Picture, for example. I think Memento won Best Screenplay in the year that was it A Beautiful Mind uh, won Best Picture. That sort of stuff. You oh, know? Yeah, I think it was. Um, um, it wasn't. It was the English Patient that year was the one that kind of the Miramax, the Miramax uh, sweep. Yes. I, yeah. I, w- I want to tell listeners I've already updated the Wikipedia. Page. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't, don't, don't panic. Changes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um all right, so before we jump into talking about the movie with spores, three questions to kick us off. Uh so Rena, do you think that Fargo is one of the two hundred and fifty best movies ever made? I say this a lot because you get me to review some of my favorite films. So I feel like I'm saying this blanket to everything, but yes, it absolutely does. <laughs> <laughs> You have a Princess Mononoke uh, ta- uh, tattoo. Uh, I have um, a tiny one here, and then what you what, what I won't do is show you the massive one on my leg, which is of Princess Mononoke. Uh, um, there's there's a whole tangent I could go on with Japanese themed character tattoos that are in various places. Um, some bonus content for our anime, which is presumably. <laughs> A few months or weeks ago. <laughs> yes, <laughs> last month, because this is the last episode in June, uh, according to scheduling. Um, and Stacey, what about yourself? Do you think the Fargo belongs on list of the 250 best movies ever made? Yeah, again, I probably have the same qualifier as Rianuk in that I come on to talk about movies I really love. But like, absolutely, yes. Like, I would say that along with 
like some of the films I mentioned earlier, Silence of the Lambs and Seven. This is one of the defining kind of crime thrillers of the 90s. <laughs> and get there are enough kind of idiosyncratic kind of Cohen things and enough things that set it apart in terms of its characterization, like I've already talked about with Marge, in terms of its setting, in, in terms of the way that things kind of play out, that make it just very distinctive. And I would say, yes, certainly it belongs in the top 250 on IMDb. For me, it would still be one of my top three Coen Brothers movies, but I don't know that I could rank any of the three. Like, they're probably all number Similarly, one. Similarly, you know I mean? yeah. It's like yeah. they change entirely on mood and... Yeah. You know, every time you watch it, you're like, oh no, this is my favorite Coen Brothers this is movie. My and yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I certainly had that feeling watching it again. Yeah, absolutely. What are those three then for you, Stacey? Ooh. Oh, um, I mean, Fargo is a really easy one to say. The Big Lebowski is a really easy one to say. And then maybe A Serious Man. Uh, I really yeah. like A Serious Man. But then I also love oh. Lewin Davis. You know, it's it, it's... You know, they're even the top three probably change a lot, and they're all equally as good at each other. <laughs> and and Rena, what about yourself? Like you said, that they do change depending on viewing. But at the moment, like, is Fargo one of your favorite Coen Brothers films? Is it top of the pack? It, it does pack? feel like if, if you can picture like a solar system and all of these planets kind of going around <laughs> it and kind of changing that, like Fargo does feel like the sun in my head because I'm like the others are kind of interchangeable in that top three on unranked top three <laughs> so yeah. Fargo kind of feels consistent in it whereas Barton Fink will uh rotate in and definitely the Big Lebowski um I say the Big Lebowski is probably my most watched most uh <laughs> enjoyed most go-to Coen Brothers movie so that is probably my favorite but in terms of form voice you know, who am I, someone says they want to get into the Going Brothers and it'd be like, what took you so long? And then I'd be like, well, Fargo <laughs> is a good place to start. So, and then I love One Brother Where Art Thou and, and Serious Man and No Country. And yeah, it's, it's really, really hard. So, but I think Big Lebowski, Fargo, they will always be consistent in there. Uh Let's very quickly run through the Coens on the IMDb list. So, like, there have been a total of 10 Coen Brothers movies on the list over the past uh, 25 years. Who we guess? Is <laughs> that's okay. probably okay, too many for the listeners uh, at home. But it will, will yeah. go, go, what's it called? Family Fortune. <laughs> Family, okay, so I had to, so like, guess, guess survey says... Survey says, okay, so... Okay, let's, okay, so let's, let's go with... Okay, so let's go around the table. So, Stacey movie that was either on the list or is currently on the list so the three that are currently on or the seven that are currently off okay I, I, ex- so obviously fargo's fargo. an easy one yeah fargo's an easy uh, yes yeah, so i've got to say fargo's a game <laughs> <laughs> i think <laughs> spoiler alert um fargo's yeah. there. good answer is that <laughs> yeah. what they say on um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right all right <laughs> oh um the big lebowski is definitely on it and no country for old men Yep, those are those are the three that are currently on there. So the seven that have been on and have dropped off and will make Andrew very happy. The Hudsucker Proxy and Miller's Crossing were both on the list at one time or another. 
Raising Arizona and Blood Simple were also on the list at one time or another. The Man Who Wasn't There and Oh Brother Where Art Thou were also on the list very, very briefly. And True Grit uh, is the most recent Coen Brothers movie to have made the list. So Lewin Davis, A Serious Man, Hail Caesar, none of those made the list. But uh, their most recent entry on the list is is True Grit, which which dropped off. All right, then, and Andrew, do you think that Fargo is one of the 250 best movies ever made? Yeah, I do. And it, it's kind of in spite of me not kind of really warming to Coen Brothers, um, which is strange because I like I, it. It's 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 that terrible thing of we like just, we just spent fifteen minutes of you yelling at me for not liking like Hudsucker from their early stuff. <laughs> oh, okay, their early funny stuff. And it, well, yeah, they, they, but they, I mean, I liked No Country for Old Men. Aside from aside from the bad um, choking technique of <laughs> um, of Anton Chigurh, I was like, "What is he doing there?" That took me out of it. But um, no, yeah, they 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 late stuff. I'm not mad about. This is a um, a great movie, and it's not kind of it's it's not gotten into that problem with. I guess you're going to call it mid Cohen Brothers because presumably they're just going to keep going for 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 quite a long time. Um, of like I didn't like Hail Caesar or the Battle of the Buster Skulls. Mm-hmm. This definitely does. Um, I think if 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 you're gonna have um, like three movies, I guess have this the Big Lebowski. And I say like Burn After Reading for me. I I I think is great. Um, I I I I appreciate the serious man, but it's too much of what I don't like about <laughs> um about the the, the Coen brothers Late burn Cowans. after reading kind of represents the, the, a lot of the same stuff you see <laughs> it in this movie too and i guess we'll talk about it later late, late, later on but it's just like a perspective that i don't enjoy um because <laughs> i feel like i can't share but but i mean that, that that's that was what you say darren about film being a, an, an empathy machine um i think ebert it, said it to be fair no, no, you. It was you. He stole it from you. Um, <laughs> you've said it enough times now that you've now eclipsed him, um, and and he's not going to be uh, anyway. Um, so no, um, yeah, it 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 does belong to be on the two fifty. All right, um, and then so Rena, is it on your own personal two fifty? Your own two hundred and fifty favorite movies? It's got to be because it is, and and maybe it is just again even to narrow down that you only do. You only, uh, I, I've, I've only ever been here to talk about films that I like. I've only ever really been here, with the exception of maybe Gone with the Wind, to talk about films <laughs> that have had a huge monumental, emotional, developmental impact on me, most of them in my early teens, like Taxi Driver. So this one was definitely one of them. So I've, I've, I was actively trying to watch it the other night with things that I didn't I now don't like about it or problems that I have with it and I can't find anything. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to be incredibly enthusiastic and just talk about everything that I love about it. So yeah, it's completely on my top 250. And Stacey, what about yourself? Yeah, same. And uh, developmental is a good word to mention there. I feel like I saw it (laughs) at kind of an important time for you know defining what I like about films like what I want to see on screen and there are probably other films I watched at that age that I now do not like at all or like I don't recognize the things that I liked or they're hidden behind other things that I now don't like but Fargo's not one of them Fargo definitely Mm -hmm. has stood the test of time for me and 
kind of within the Cohen's own oeuvre as well. Like it is still probably their strongest film overall, mm -hmm. question mark. So yeah, definitely it's in my own personal list for sure. For sure. Um, and, and Andrew? Yes, yes, I, 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 would, I would bring this with me to Movie Island because like watching it the other night, I, uh, to Good Movie Island, yeah. Um, um, <laughs> not the leaves um, there. Never forget yeah, about it. No, not, um, the, yeah. not the ferry to Bad Movie Island. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Andrew, yeah. having just returned from Bad Movie Island with Uwe Boll, is bad. Is Good Movie Island like one of uh, the, the the North Island of New Zealand, <laughs> and uh, and the South of New Zealand is bad Movie Island? I think I think we'll probably have some some angry listeners from New Zealand or one. <laughs> um, sorry um yeah no i i would i would i would um i was grinning a lot watching this it it is um i don't know how much of an influence it had on me growing up it was great to see that there were movies kind of for me i guess um and and i i felt a lot like that with coen brothers movies kind of growing up like um and i guess less so now and i don't know is that me that's changed or the movie but um yeah no it it it, it would be on my list um it's just a joy um yeah. i don't know how much it's affected me developmentally <laughs> maybe maybe i've learned lessons about what not to do in life because there's, there's a lot of kind of you, you know you can accuse the coen brothers of being kind of uh of, of not really having um well anyway sorry we'll talk about that stuff later yes it would be yeah this is the this is the frequent coen brothers nihilist thing to the point where like right. an entire subplot of the big lebowski is dedicated to the coen brothers mocking the idea of themselves as nihilists you know <laughs> they um, don't protest too much you know like <laughs> okay. people who aren't nihilists don't have to make movies about how they're not nihilists <laughs> Um, okay, that's a that's a separate discussion. We had it on the No Country for Old Men podcast. We're probably going to end up relegislating it. Yeah, but, this, uh, this is like the Spanish Inquisition. It's like that's just proof that you are a witch. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. And then final question before we jump to the spore zone, uh, Renuk. If listeners have not seen No, uh, sorry, Fargo. I almost said No Country for Old Men, <laughs> but also if they haven't seen No Country for Old Men, if they haven't seen Fargo, should they pause the podcast and and stream Fargo? Oh God, yes. I um, I mean, only for the danger that it's really hard to not spoil it because it, it's 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 set up almost from the get go that there are things that happen that almost feel like spoilers when you give them away. So it's uh, definitely put down the podcast, watch it, and come back. <laughs> yeah, we we like we we spent the opening few minutes of the podcast discussing a character who doesn't appear for thirty two minutes into the film. <laughs> yeah. Which is something that we'll talk about in the spoiler zone. Um, and then, Stacey, would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and watch the movie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would be a little bit surprised if there were listeners of this podcast who hadn't seen Fargo. Mm -hmm. But if there are any, definitely pause it. Watch Fargo. It's a tight 90 as well. I feel like it's only about 90 minutes yeah. long. 98, take, I think, yeah. Yeah, won't take you that long. Just go, go do it. And yeah, go in knowing even less than what we've told you somehow. <laughs> Like, like a blank white slate, like yes. the film's opening shots. That's how you want to go into it. Um, and Andrew. Yeah, if you have not seen the movie Fargo, or watched the TV show Fargo, or read those news stories from 1987 about when they, when when these things happened. Definitely uh, happened. Definitely Unequivocally happened. happened. Absolutely, <laughs> certainly happened. Of course they happened. Why would we say it if it didn't? It's a true story. Um, it's a true story. <laughs> they, 
So if 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 you've somehow never encountered the this uh, this story before, then um what um treat yourself. It's on. It's on. Um, it's not on Netflix. Not it anymore. Is, no, it is not on anymore. It used Google um, Play. YouTube as well yeah. is where I where I rented it again. Exactly. Me too. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 it's not um, a hard to find movie. No, it's not no, a hard. To you'll find you'll you'll find it and buy it as well. Like the, the, and, and, <laughs> it's a gamble, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it's not. Buy it. It's good. <laughs> you will watch <laughs> it again. Um, yeah. Um, and it, it's a delight. I will refund this. No, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> With all that sweet 250 ad revenue that we have. Oh, um, but... <laughs> all, right. all right, then. Um, you do realize, Andrew, you, you can't just wear the merchandise on camera. It's an audio medium. You have to say it out loud. But no, all joking, all joking Go- aside, we're going to segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Go Bears. I, I, that's what that B is. Spoiler zone. <laughs> so, Stacey, what is Fargo about for you? What is Fargo about for me? I was thinking about this a little bit, uh, because usually when you ask me, I just recount the plot of the movie. But I think there are some themes that you get from the get-go in Fargo that, you know, it comes to a nice natural conclusion at the end and kind of summing them up, as a lot of Coen, brother mo- Coen Brothers movies do. I feel like this is a film about kind of success and incompetence or competence success and failure competence and incompetence and sort of finding peace with where those two things reconcile for you so having a certain level of success or not being competent or incompetent enough to carry out a plan and I feel like I'm rambling a little bit now but I I feel like there is an intersection between those kind of three ideas of like success competence and happiness in the film and whether well aspiration in particular aspiration yeah Yeah. happiness aspiration rather than happiness like there is maybe one character who manages to get the balance between all of these correct and that's marge who we were talking about earlier the Mm -hmm. pregnant police chief but everyone else whether or not they succeed in what they want or get what they want kind of depends on how competent they are how happy they are yeah. And yeah, just their their capabilities, like their overall capabilities, knowing their own competence level and trying to rise above it will <laughs> will will see them come a cropper in Fargo, basically. It's the it's the Peter principle, basically. Yes. Everybody rises to the level of their own competence. <laughs> I was gonna say I was gonna say that I think Norm is happier, but then again, like I don't think he'd be as happy if Marge wasn't telling him how mm. important the three cent mallard yeah. stamp is what? but that, that's is. That, that's the core theme like the theme is the importance of the three cent mallard it's it's the fact that people <laughs> do need those stamps and like it's a historical in joke because like the thing that she says oh when they raise the postage people need that to make it up mm. and they did raise the postage from the 29 cent to 32 cents a couple of years after this movie is set so Aww. if you are familiar with the historical <laughs> yeah, if you're familiar with the historical i love context, the level of research such a good <laughs> research team those mallards did gangbusters yeah. in 1989. And those mallards were, aren't they friends of the Cohen brothers? The Hoffmans are actually real um, family friends of the Cohens because they, they grew up in Minnesota. Yes. 
Yep, apparently it is inspired. Like, a lot of it is drawn from their own experience of growing up there. This was one of the big debates, and we'll probably come back to it in a little bit, because I want to get, I want to engage with, like, what Andrew and Stacey said about, like, the idea of aspiration. But yeah, one of the big debates around Fargo was its portrayal of the Midwest, and its portrayal of Midwesterners, and the debate over whether or not it was patronizing and condescending and, like, passive-aggressive um, and cynical. Um, and the Coen brothers' response being that, well, no, well, we actually grew up in that environment. This is, we're writing literally what we know. We're drawing mm -hmm. from our own experience of what it was like in that kind of space. Sorry, Andrew. Every, every, every great artist as well, kind of, well, well, most will have a kind of an ambivalent relationship with their, with their, with their home place, you know, that, that they, mm -hmm. that they'll, that they might write about it, but they've, they go away from it. Kind of like, like, like Irish writers like Joyce and kind of, um, wild and like like what have you i i mean i don't need to to give too many examples there but um yeah that, i i guess the same will be true of the coen brothers but what people from those places don't like is when somebody goes away and kind of writes about them until they can feel proud of it you know and i think that's I sort of a weird thing of it, it, it you see it happen a lot with depictions of irish movies where we will feel really 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 protective about um who who can be afforded the privilege of making fun of the Irish? How uh, we have to make fun of ourselves, but we are not going to let American people come in, tell us this is exactly how we we look to them and make fun of us in the meantime. That's like there's there's an interest. Well, Mountain Time is available to stream now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is eventually. <laughs> finally, I, you know, I think it does walk that line on the side of endearment and with love where it it it's not taking it like i think they do more it would do more disservice to take midwesterners more seriously because it's exactly their niceness and the cleanly and the kind of good spiritness of them that is so endearing more than making fun of them because it's it's just not what we're used to in a crime movie as well it's just fantastic contrast I think the success of a movie that makes fun of people from a place as well, or, or anything that makes fun of people from a place, like even the likes of um, Russell Carroll Kelly, the success of that is that you have people who say like, oh my God, it's just like my friend. Yeah. You know, <laughs> my friend is so like that. And and similarly, the, 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 that you can have people with this saying, oh geez, yeah, this is just just, just oh, like yeah. my sister. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It sounds just so we like apologize to listeners from the Midwest. Yeah, um, sorry. But that relationship is is baked into it. Like we're Minnesota. Like at the time, there was this debate from people in Minnesota about whether it was fair about the community and it being reclaimed. Like a lot of its twenty fifth anniversary celebrations are in Minnesota. Um, you know, they don't necessarily have a statue of Paul Bunyan. They have a statue of Marge Gunderson. They don't actually have a statue of Marge Gunderson. But you get a sense of like trying to kind of capitalize on that. But to bring it is back the Blue to... Blue Ox, a real place. <laughs> yeah. um, I, it's the... so hilarious. That idea of like the, 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 the Blue Ox and the Paul Bunyan story being like the setting of this like kind of... Um, Falsified, uh... completely untrue, fabricated <laughs> yeah. bit of American but... mythology. <laughs> Yeah. But it is a place where people go to get laid and like get drunk and um, and it taking kind of all of the kind of naivety out of um out of that sort of um legend. It's yeah. um it's hilarious. Like uh, I can understand why people were pissed. <laughs> <laughs> but 
to, to bring it back to kind of what we were talking about there about like the idea of aspiration and greed because obviously you do have like that big speech you have like these are the themes of the movie says marge gunderson at mm-hmm. one point when she's driving away uh with peter stormare in the back seat and she's talking about you know how it's all about people who want a little bit more money and it's all it's greed is the kind of corrupting force everybody is trying to rip everybody else off and i kind of i love how ridiculously and absurdly petty it is most obviously kind of with the steve buscemi character um who is like constantly haggling so carl showwater where he's like you know haggling over he refuses to buy the kind of tickets to park his car (laughs) um he refuses to pay for those he's too lazy to change the dealer plates he gets killed by like gare uh because he refuses to sell him the car uh even though he's hidden He's hidden over like $920,000 down the road. He could easily just fork over for half a car. But the idea I think at this point, he's he's uncertain whether he is ever going to see that (laughs) $920,000 again. He's he's realized. Yeah, it just feels like like how anxious people feel (laughs) watching him him put that thing in the snow. And like, um, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sure it'll be found in, in the spring. Well, summer. okay. Well, yeah, that that's a conversation that we may come back to. Coen but... Brothers have probably answered this question, right? Um, no, it, it's a it's a plot point in the first season of Fargo, the television show. Uh, um, um, it's the, the it's the big connection that exists between the films and the TV show. Um, but the the thing though is that like it's all about greed. It's this idea of kind of greed as a corrupting force, as something, and not only greed but incompetence. And again, this is one of the things that. I really like about it because it it very much reflects a Darren worldview, but it's it's the idea that like greed and and again this is the thing where the Fargos are described as nihilists and I've never bought that outside of maybe like No Country for Old Men and that's a Cormac McCarthy like adaptation as much as it's a Coen Brothers film and maybe Burn After Reading but they wrote that when they were writing No Country for Old Men, but like the incompetence though it 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 kind of touches into envy as well. Because it's the idea, not only are you greedy, like, in and of itself, but you're envious of what other people have. And you think, why don't I have that? And you don't I realize that, that the answer to that question is because you don't deserve it. <laughs> you're not smart you're enough. <laughs> yeah. 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 And like, if you, but, like, the thing is, though, like, in Fargo, good, as embodied by Marge Gunderson, is hardworking. It is decent. It is meticulous, it is careful, it is procedural, it is structured. Like, we mentioned that how unusual Marge is as a protagonist in a story like this, in that she's not like Al Pacino in Heat, in that I don't believe yeah. she has a cocaine addiction off screen that justifies all of her behavior. But she she's <laughs> decent, she's kind, like, she gets on well with the people around her, she's, she's smart. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's no sequence where yeah where Marge interrogates Jerry by insisting that she got a great ass. Um, but no, I mean like there is like she does the hard work, she puts the hours in, and like one of the things I really love about it is there's no big eureka moment. There's no mm-hmm. moment where like she's sitting in the car and she like a switch goes in her head and she's like figured it out, figured the whole case together. Instead, you see it coming together through like careful Good police, police work. work. That, that's it exactly like by actually do, like just going around talking to people they figure out that like you know carl and gear are hiding at the lake because somebody phones in a tip and and like and they go and visit the guy and the guy who phoned in the tip like wonderful touch is cleaning his driveway he's actually doing the work and again the idea that like moral 
moral hygiene is hard. The idea of like being a good person is hard. You work carefully, you work at it every day and you keep doing it and eventually you get through. And the idea that like evil is lazy and slovenly and clumsy and awkward and it takes all of these shortcuts and it is disastrous for everything that it comes in contact with, but it will inevitably collapse. Like even if Jerry you know, didn't concoct this crazy plan to kidnap his wife and extort money from his father-in-law, he's still going to end up going to prison Mm -hmm. for his GMAC scam, which is worth $320,000. Like, even if Carl, you know, doesn't end up murdered by gear, he's left Mm -hmm. enough bloody footprints all over the place that the cops are still going to find and arrest him for this. Like, the idea in Fargo that, like, these characters who are trying to make a quick book aren't like sexy cool outlaws they're just incredibly incompetent greedy ugly people who will inevitably get caught but who will cause immeasurable damage to everybody who is caught in their wake like the sequence where like proudfoot arrives and beats the crap out of carl (laughs) with the belts like that's sort of anyway. Sorry, sorry. It's it's like the, the newspapers when they describe like a, a hitman, and it's just kind of somebody who thinks they're a hitman and is wants the money, you know. And 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 and, and it, like and then they describe the kind of hit in the paper, and it's like um, it's like uh, sixteen shots were fired, and and it, it's like a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. Kind of when 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 because people, um, often it's kind of people doing this kind of thing. They're it's because they they don't have particularly good options elsewhere. They're 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 not, um. Well, I don't know. They it's they're not the marriages of this world. Yeah. Well, we talked about this on Heat, like where Heat inspired a spate of bank robberies, but none of the bank robberies that Heat inspired were anywhere near as competent or as careful or as like orchestrated as the bank robbery and heat. They largely consisted of people buying guns and going into banks and it ending horribly for everybody involved. Like there was a massive shootout in LA that resulted from uh, a guys who had watched heat far, far too many times. Denier, Denier bros. Um, or Al bros. Yeah, it's like I said, Darren. There's no eureka moment in Fargo because she really doesn't need one. Like this isn't a mm-hmm. very complex criminal plan. You know, everything yeah. is in plain sight. As you say, Carl doesn't even change the plates on the car, so the car is easily <laughs> traceable. They're coming from out of town, so they're very, very conspicuous. Like it's. A very shoddy plan. Like this isn't something she needs to have a stroke of genius to solve. Even when he does change the plates, he can't be conspicuous about. <laughs> no. He can't be inconspicuous about it. Mm. He's an idiot. Mm. Sorry. No, but that, that's the yeah, and the fact that like that laziness is what gets like even the fact that when they kidnap her and take her to the cabin, the cabin doesn't have central heating, mm. so you get the shots of her having to sit by the open oven to keep her warm, and Gare wearing these kind of like pull up like pants to keep him warm, and Carl then going off to prostitutes and like being 
obnoxious and loud and do, drawing attention to himself when the entire one imagines the the way to do this is not to draw attention to yourself. I, I do love, you by the way... You say that as if you don't know, Darren. Yeah, I, 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 when I orchestrate a kidnapping to embezzle money from my father-in-law. But I do, I do think that, like, I love the fact that, like, everybody describes Carl, played by C. Buscemi, as a funny-looking guy. You know, kind of funny-looking, uh, which is great. I was just about to say, like, like for me... Um... The, the one thing that stands out when I watch Fargo again, I think it's it's such a perfectly pitched film about opposites and contrast between the visual language and how it's shot, between casting, between the rhythm of dialogue, the rhythm of certain scenes. There are some really perfectly pitched quiet moments compared to really beautiful dialogue heavy scenes. Um, like, for example... Geyer has 16 lines and Carl has 150 lines <laughs> of dialogue. Um, so it's just so per it's it's it to me it's kind of like at the heart of it it is about a duality a, a, and a portrait of America, which is you can absolutely um you can aspire to having these great things and having these really great moral moments, but you can also um you you can have this really kind of seedy, nasty underbelly just lingering really closely as well. And I think that's what makes it so perfect is it's it's completely lean and and everything in front of the camera speaks towards that kind of high contrast as well. Yeah. And we should mention the cinematography of Roger Deakins here, because one of the things I noticed last night, which is fantastic, is... As a film, it is very consciously shot in black and white. You have, like, obviously the white mm. of, like, the snowy kind of, uh, and the blizzard and the, the ice and stuff. And the opening shots of the movie are kind of a white backdrop. And then kind of, like, Jerry's car materializes into it, like, darkness coming into shot. But, like, repeatedly throughout the film will fade or cut to black or white. Mm -hmm. And the way in which characters are framed, I'm thinking of the sequence where Carl and Gear shoot the cop on the side of the road. And so you have like the way in which the camera is positioned where you have the snow blowing through the air, but you have, say, Steve Buscemi shot against a black backdrop and then the harsh red lights, the police mm -hmm. siren, or things like the character fleeing across the ice again in, in harsh white against blackness. But like, I love that even the visual language reinforces the idea. And again, it, like the, that that nonsense of the Coens being nihilist. In the world of Fargo, there is black and there is white. There is good and there is bad. And those there, are... What, good's not going to save you and bad's not going to condemn you. Like they, 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 This movie is more moralistic than some of their other movies. But it's also like... It's like... Um, Mulholland Drive, I guess. They, yeah, they, they, it's, it's, it's like they, a Minnesota noir or something. Exactly, where 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 like a bullet goes through a a, a wall and um and accidentally kills somebody, or they, they, it's it's that sort of universe that the that the that the movie exists in. Maybe that's more real. I There's guess. no but poetry it, or cinema. I think I guess that's what I, I think it, it does marry a lot of. I remember getting this book around the same time or uh, mum must have got it for me for Christmas. It was a kind of a, a biography of the Coens up to, um, I think, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Or maybe just before Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it was just about, um, it, it was about their references, films like Sullivan's Travels and a lot of noir and stuff that inspired Blood Simple and a lot of interviews about cinema. So that was always... Um, a big reason why it then got into them is because it was sort of a gateway to 
other films that then inspired Miller's Crossing and and Raising Arizona and everything. But it was just a uh, for Fargo. It is it's 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 a, it's a noir, but it's such a down to earth noir, and it's even that kind of high contrast as well. Like you were saying, it is shot like a noir but it's just got it doesn't have femme fatales it doesn't have all these tropes and things that we associate with that genre it's it's um it's minnesota noir and well it's not it's it's not sexy or glamorous like that's the thing is that that shot where they go from like sleeping with the prostitutes to watching the tonight show like which is kind of like it's a hilarious kind of sequence because you have that juxtaposition between the two or the fact that gare is sitting there watching like bruce campbell um in his soap opera you know it's bruce campbell yeah, um, yeah like, they, but it it's Mar- marriage gunderson kind of undercutting the noirness of it as well yeah. by by being the detective who's not kind of you know Morally ambiguous, sultry, and yeah, or down under, and on, under look like the the most moral ambiguity we get from from Marge, and this is probably a point of contention yes. is whether she's kind of considering, yeah. um, having some sort of a uh kind of a tryst or a romance while in um the the was it the Twin City? Yes, um, oh, yeah. when she gets out, she gets to the big Minneapolis. city. Yes, the Radisson. Yeah, I, yeah, I hear it's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> Is it reasonable? <laughs> is it reasonable? Which is which is a very de- like as somebody <laughs> from a line. rural county in Ireland, that's a very very revealing. It's so line. relatable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like um, you are not going to get Veronica Lake um, asking saying, whether it's reasonable. Oh yeah, is it reasonable? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, and it, that that as well. I just love the fact that every time we see her with Norm, they're eating. Or yes. they're in bed, which I think yeah. is the perfect picture of intimacy in a, in a marriage is they're just contentment to be quiet, eating next to each other. I think it's such a beautiful scene. That's my favorite moment in the whole film. Well, we'll come back to the mic stuff in a moment because I think the mic stuff is worth talking about. But like that that sequence, like the fact that with with Marge, who doesn't enter the picture until 32 minutes in. But the way in which Marge enters the picture is you spend basically two days with her. That are yeah. th- well, several days with her because she goes to the big city. But like the first, you spend like half an hour that is her day. You fade in on her in the morning getting up with Norm, having breakfast, needing him to jump the car in a fantastic mm-hmm. shot. She walks out the door, there's a beat and she walks back in and says she needs a jump. But then you go to the end of the day with the two of them in bed together and you fade yeah. to black. And you get that, again, that's that's the contrast. That's almost like what Andrew described as kind of the anti-noir, which is like, this is how well balanced Marge's life is. That you can go from the morning... She's not an alcoholic. She's not a washed up kind of ex-cop. She doesn't have anger issues. Yeah. No, you get the sense that every day is like this for Marge. And that, that not in a, like a, you know, a condescending, like, oh, her life is so boring. In like a, no, this is actually like, pretty this is good. the importance. This is the fact that she can go home and switch off her job and not need to tell Norm about the horrible day that she had. She tells, she spends her time doing something positive for Norm. There's no moment. Yeah, there's no moment where Marge says... Yeah, Mars sits down and says, there was a baby in a microwave, Norm. Um, I have to share you with all the nasty folks out there. My daughter <laughs> is so messed up. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's another point of contrast to Jerry and Jean, right? In that yeah, Norm would yeah. never dream of doing something like Jerry does. It's like, it's another point of contrast in the film that we have this beautiful, unified couple. They're so unified that they are literally always on screen together 
even when she has left the house and is outside yeah. of her car, they're in the same <laughs> shot. Like, it's beautifully done. Whereas we never see anything like that with Jerry and Jean because obviously they are not unified. There's no in their sense roles. of their relationship at all. At like, all. I, you can see, like, a Playboy magazine next to the toilet. Yeah. And you do get these little kind of hints that he's just, he, he, you know, obviously things are not great, you know, if that's <laughs> what he's planning to do. <laughs> Um, it's it's just the fact that he's so lonely as well. It's like she's clearly not lonely. She's this community of really supportful, supportive uh, colleagues and husband and friends on the phone and everything. Like she has this whole community, and we we give her all these moments of importance, um, like getting up and having breakfast and starting the car and asking somebody for lunch or packing her bag in the hotel. They're not like hugely cinematic moments, but you know, that's her life and that's the importance we give her because it's in great contrast to, you know, Jerry trying to figure stuff out as things go wrong. <laughs> um and I, I just kind of yeah, I, I just really love that difference between their domestic life, even their kid as well. I keep forgetting their uh, Jerry and Jean's kid is just, just such a good actor with his love of the accordion man poster yeah. on the back of the, of the door. <laughs> but like the fact that like he like and, and again the idea of kind of like greed and wanting more he has like he has the family dinner and he's like he's going to meet his friends at McDonald's <laughs> after dinner he's going yeah, to have the fast waste. food. Yeah food waste they're obligatory and that's how you know that something's rotten in the household. They've embraced food waste, but like it's such a good movie because it's such a good lesson. Because they're they're it and and it is it like like that that's kind of a problem I have with with the Coen Brothers sometimes is the kind of the the chaos can can just uh, make you feel like what's the point, like they they in in you know they, they, that. Um, is God just, um, you know, testing us um, to see how um, how good of a, a person we are by 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 trying us with all of these terrible things that happens? Kind of like a like serious a serious man, man quite literally. Yeah, yeah. but but it, it, and 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 that it, it's it's it that that can that can make life seem sort of futile. But this movie, I I I I liked a lot, and like. It, because I feel the the values kind of um, espoused in a in a not kind of uh, didactic way are are very valuable, and that that they're very, very. I I mean this this might sound like an obvious thing to say, but 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 that's it's very much in contrast to the things we value as a society, you know, which 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 is which is you know like. Um, it's not just that you need to have a house; it's that you need to have a house mm -hmm. in a certain place, and that well, you can always not... have more, and you you yeah. need more money, and your status is determined by your wealth and your power and your influence and yeah. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. If somebody else has those things, why can't you? And and it's all about kind of like being tricked by businesses, um, which is good for businesses, but not good for the people being tricked by them. You know, and like it all makes sense and stuff, but. But there, there's something kind of soulless about it, and I, I like that this movie puts forward the kind of um, simplicity, and 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 also there's an arc for marriage where she realizes, I guess, how lucky she is. Yes, we'll we'll come, how, 
come yeah. back to that in a second. I just want to like on on what Renuk said there about the contrast between Jerry and Marge. Like little details, like when Marge's car won't start, she comes into Norm and asks for the jumper cables, and contrasting that with Jerry walking out to his car alone. Again, the wonderful yeah, wide yeah. shot where he's just walking through the snow and he has to scratch the ice off by himself uh, because he's feeling angry and humiliated. It's such a, such a great contrast. But yes, the Mike stuff then, I think is what Andrew is getting at there. The Mike scene, which is one of the more controversial mm-hmm. scenes in the film. It's it's one that when it came out, a lot of critics were like, what is this scene doing in the movie? We don't understand. It distracts from like the actual plot and everything that's going on. I have no idea what the purpose of this is, but I think Andrew suggested something there about the Mike mm-hmm. scene, which I think is worth delving into. Yeah, it's, it's just that, that, that like it, it would be, it would be uh, she would be a less interesting character we kind of we we and on on one hand we kind of resent that scene because it suggests that that's um uh, that marriage suffers from the same kind of uh, uh weaknesses that 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 a work that 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 a less perfect character would suffer from but it also makes um her kind of realization at the end about the difference between kind of like mm-hmm. where that sort of um desire goes i guess yeah. of always wanting more um and of not um appreciating the the kind of beauty and simplicity i guess yeah um i i, I don't think that 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 point would really hit as strongly if you didn't have the mic stuff now the, the, maybe 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 it's not maybe it's not done great or or, or maybe it does feel like a, a bit of um a bit like it's taking you out of the movie or that it's a strange mm-hmm. B plot, and that may, maybe that's fair, but it does it does serve a purpose, I think. Completely. I, I the one thing I I thought of when it did when I watched it the other night was that this is the filmmakers winking to the audience, going, "Not everything you hear is true," because I think <laughs> that's the that 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 scene and the big sob story he sells her uh, sells her on, and then. And then the phone call of just like, no, he's fine. He's living with his parents. You know, it's uh, it it's like if this was a film that, you know, out of respect to all the survivors, everything has been told exactly as it occurred. Then why is that scene there? <laughs> why is that part of the story uh, out of respect for the survivors? And it's a complete wink that don't believe everything you hear. And that's kind of what I take away from it, as well as giving Marge something outside the plot that we see how good she is at keeping those boundaries. Yeah, I was thinking about it as well, in that I often forget that this is part of the movie, and then you watch it and you're like, oh yeah, the mic stuff. Um, But I was thinking again in terms of the movie's view of success and competence. Like, Mike is presented as being quite good at his job, He's making decent money. Like he even comments, like if you're an engineer, you could be doing worse than working for the people I work for. But he still feels like without some sort of family angle, like without a family, without a wife, he may look less successful than he would like to. Like he wants to present this image of himself to Marge, even though he works in this bizarre, tragic element to it, where it's like, yes, I'm married to a woman you knew, uh, but she got leukemia and died. Um, (laughs) And again, maybe that's to sort of soften him or to sort of signal his availability to her. Uh, 
but I think he needs to present himself as at least at one stage in his life having had a happy desirable (laughs) in addition to being financially successful and having a good job and being competent he needs to have had a wife he can't just have been a guy yeah at home Mm -hmm. it's strange how much of a signifier that is Mm. I'm not certain but I think I may have accidentally lied in the job interview to suggest that I had a fiance (laughs) back in like 2006 or something when I definitely didn't that was around um, the time that The Departed came out right was The Departed a big influence there listening to Alec Baldwin's pitch <laughs> yeah exactly but 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 that I think amongst other things it might have got me that entry level job because <laughs> um, they're saying oh he's kind he's of a, stable. Um, he's, yeah, he's got yeah. foundations did you have to keep up the lie is the question so did you have to like you know kind of like yeah, take like catalog pictures when yeah catalog was, pictures and put them hang them up on your desk in frames <laughs> I was surprised sometimes when it would come up because someone is like oh I didn't know he had a girlfriend and then my manager would correct them and say it's not his girlfriend it's his fiance he didn't know <laughs> About her. I was like, you guys are yeah. expecting, right? And Andrew has to go along with the lie. And it's like before he knows it, he's like a suburban dad with three kids. I spend a lot of the naughties, and Darren knows this. Yes, like, I do. I hilarious lies yes. yes, I do. Telling people things that were just completely untrue for my own um, entertainment. Yeah, and, I don't know um... why why we're friends. Uh, but <laughs> I am the most gullible man on the planet, and Andrew is. Uh, you know, at times, at times, I don't want to use the term pathological, but there, you, you did enjoy. I, I do did worry enjoy. about myself and, and think kind of like, why did I do that? Um, and I know why I did it on one level, because it was a lot of fun. It was fun. Like, you really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. <laughs> even occasionally, there will be th- there'll be times, like I think even since we started the podcast, there have been moments where I've asked about something and you're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, remember you told me when you were a teenager? And it's like, that was a lie, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> that never happened. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, yeah. Sorry. So this is this is why Fargo is your favorite Coen Brothers film, perhaps. Um, <laughs> the lie at yeah. its at the center. It taught, it taught me how not to lie. Yeah. Um, but but to bring it back to the, the Mike stuff, which I, I find interesting, there's a lot of really good stuff there. Like there's the fact in which, and again, maybe we'll come back to talking about Mars as a character and what makes her because we talked a lot about her because she's a fascinating character and she's fantastic and is brilliant. But things like. The ambiguity that kind of Andrew suggests, I don't think, like, I don't think she's ever seriously considering an affair or anything. I don't think she's thinking about cheating with Norm, but there is a sense of the possibility of it, of going to the big mm-hmm. city. She she wears makeup. She does up her hair. She mm-hmm. never tells her husband or it's it's like we see a lot of conversation with Norm and she never mentions Mike to Norm either as well. Like, I, I don't think she's going, well, Mike, that's going to be fantastic. We'll embark on an illicit affair. I think she's more... Wouldn't it be interesting if the possibility existed? And she has that kind of, again, as Andrew pointed out, that feeling of coveting something that you don't have and something that you might want and something that you might find in, like, like Jerry does, like Carl does, like all of the other characters in the movie do. And I like... It's like she's just stepped into a sex shop and she's like, oh, (laughs) and and then kind of, you know, walks backwards and it's like, well, I didn't enjoy that. No, Maybe maybe I'll try going in again. I think there's Um, something interesting on the cusp of motherhood as well is that there's this, you know, like this kind of tiny window that she has to just even, not even entertain having an affair, but just the the ability to be, to, 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 to be desired. And it's that kind of, that it is that ego that, 
is at the heart of every other character's dilemma is what happens when you pursue this. And I think yeah. that's it's met so perfectly by just how awkward and horrible that scene goes at the end and, and how tense it actually is because it is really tense, but so perfectly acted. And I, I that moment where she tells him to move to the other yes. side of the table is... Yes. Like it's it's just so perfectly done. It's like no, move over there. I prefer that. But the the way in which like <laughs> it, it's so you. it's yeah no, but the way in which it's it's but firm. It's it's firm at first. It's very much no. I I'd prefer you to move back over there. And when he does, then you get the nice. Then you yeah. get the oh, let's let's put the Minnesota nice on top. Oh, it just he's means a master. <laughs> like he he's he's all he's he's trying to kind of be um, duplicitous in a different way. Like she, yeah. she, she is doing it in order to kind of soften her, um, her, um, uh, sternness mm-hmm. because the sternness is required, but it's also required to, 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 uh, or as far as she sees it, to kind of not, not, not make him feel too kind of, uh, upset, um, by it or contextualize it in a way that's not going to. Yeah. Know, for social nice, niceness as yeah. well, which I think is then. It's also setting up those boundaries ahead of that scene with Jerry where he's going to try and 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 fob her off and she's going to come back later on and interrogate him more. You know that she's capable of putting down very clear boundaries and not just being nice because she feels pressure to keep the situation pleasant. Well, that, you know, that, that's the thing. Oh, sorry. I was like, like especially when, when he does put down that, you know, ma'am, I answered your question. You're sort of... That's, that scene is in the back of your mind because you know she's not going to have that. Yeah, and I think she knows the, the kind of limits of niceness as well. And the, 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 that I, I think sometimes, um, you know, that, that, that if, if, you're, if you're being nice, you, it, 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 can, it can sometimes, you forget like why you're being nice. And, and, and that there are occasions where you ought not to be nice, you know? Where, Especially um, as a woman as well, where you just, uh, it, 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 you never see um, situations in films that demonstrate a very clear um, boundary or demonstration of how you put those boundaries down because you need to be nice, you need to be social and always smile. And those are the kind of messages, whereas when you see that, that's a demonstration of when you can break the social contract, be a bit stern, revert back to being nice and I, I don't think I can think of another example of that in cinema that is how you demonstrate where the niceness stops and the boundary gets laid yeah. down because being nice isn't always the right thing to do yeah like and 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 what the reason marriage is nice is because it is the right thing um to 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 be but when 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 that isn't the case she is no longer like yeah that's that's kind of the, it it's her goodness that makes her nice. Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. where, whereas for other people, it might be kind of out of some sort of um, obligation or yeah, yeah, or pressure or expectation. I mean, and like, and again, it, it's notable. Like we said, the movie doesn't have a big eureka moment, and it it actually doesn't because the way in which it's structured, it doesn't work out that way. But things like it's implied that like when Marge finds out that Mike lied to her, that's when she realizes <laughs> she should go back, go back and talk to Jerry. 
That's kind of like the yeah, inciting yeah. spark. And and like it doesn't magically solve the case because Jerry then absconds <laughs> in the car, <laughs> which is great. And I love like her reaction. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so ridiculously. Oh, for Pete's sake. Yeah, oh, for, like it's so her reaction to it is so fantastic. But he absconds and then like she ends up like going to the house, like uh, Carl's house unrelated to that. So it, it does. It's not a big eureka moment, but I do love that. It, like. Marge. In front of her. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, like driving right, by the window, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> he couldn't have taken another exit, possibly. Um, but like, but I, I do, I do love the idea that like Marge, like, while you get that scene with Mike where like there is the, and again, I think it's what Renick said, it's wanting to be desired or like wanting the possibility, if not the reality of it. But like in, in that and through then finding out about Mike, understanding because, like, the big moment that she has with Gare at the end where he's in the police car, mm-hmm. and again, you have that kind of stark black-white contrast between them, where you have, like, the snow field behind him and the harsh black lines of the grid that separates them, and that, like, firm delineation between good and evil in the front of the cop car and the back of the cop car. And, I mean, even the fact that his hair is kind of blondy as well makes mm-hmm. him kind of almost merge or kind of blend or blur. But things like, yeah, the the speech she has where she just can't, she can't understand it. She can, like, understand it on an academic level because she's a cop. It's her job. She's able to investigate stuff and to figure out, like, procedurally how this stuff happens and where they are. But on, like, an emotional or kind of personal level, she just cannot comprehend it, which I I find kind of fascinating as well. The idea that, like, (laughs) the evil that Carl and Gare do is is kind of, like, alien to a lot of the inhabitants. And, like, the fact that, like, it, most of this is set in, in Bernard, the, the home of Paul Bunyan, but is called Fargo. And the reason that it's called Fargo is because you have that wonderful introductory sequence where Jerry goes to Fargo to meet Carl. Um, and that's like, it's almost like the evil and darkness is coming from Fargo into Bernard. It's intruding into it and kind of oozing out. I also love, by the way, that like, these guys who are concocting this elaborate embezzlement scam to steal what Carl thinks is $80,000, uh, but what Jerry has decided is going to be a million dollars, they can't even decide on the time that they were supposed to meet each other. Like, it's it's a criminal <laughs> it's conspiracy already, of dunces. It's already yeah. does not bode well. <laughs> I, I like the meta text. Was, I, I, I think Stacey might have... Or, or, no, actually, I think it might have been Rena earlier who, 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 who mentioned the... Um, the the some some of the kind of um metatextual kind of I, I don't know if that's the right word but just kind of like pointing to the audience and telling them something about the movie itself the the way the movie starts with um with 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 carl um saying to jerry this doesn't make any sense <laughs> you know, which, which is, uh, like this uh this plot that you've laid out is is just not gonna this, this isn't gonna work like how uh, i don't understand and then trying to figure that and go yeah. off let's just take a look at the cr exactly. yeah, yeah. Just, we'll wing it we'll fly it we'll figure it out as we go but... yeah yeah it's, we'll, we'll 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 release it in october <laughs> but actually just back to that scene with marge in the car with, with gayard the one i i I can't help but think that she's talking not about him, but she's talking about everybody else other than Gare, because I think Gare doesn't strike me as somebody that really wants money. You know, for for a lot of the film, his motivations are really, really, you know, they're they're the Pancakes. thing that eludes us. Pancakes. <laughs> and 
<laughs> like really <laughs> wants pancakes. <laughs> um, crack the window when he smokes, which is, which is not which nice. Is, which it's is not pro smoko. Um, <laughs> um, but the it, I, inappropriate you know, the, smoke, inappropriate smoking, classic two fifty trope. Like he is the 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 kind of myth mythological figure, the person that is. It is just chaos that is the 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 evil that doesn't really he, he's not someone that would have set out to do this for reasons that are selfish and related to money or or personal gain or aspiration he he's a nihilist <laughs> he's he's a murderer and i think that's pretty much how it how it's demonstrated with the grotesque way he gets rid of steve Pasumi is because it's it's um He's the murderer. He's the the killer. There's nothing, there's nothing selfish about his motivations, other than he really wants to kill people and is good yeah. at it. It's that it's that kind of um, satisfaction. It, it's more kind of common with boys than than with girls to 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 you know like enjoy rough play and you know get a get a kick out of it. And people who grow up to kind of like do things for a living where where they where they can continue <laughs> to, to be mean. exactly be, be be mean beat stuff up equivalent to pushing up, someone in the people. playground and shoving a yeah. leg into a wood chipper <laughs> exactly like it, it 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 is just kind of for some reason it it it's enjoyable on some sort of and we have to learn not to do it and and it's the likes <laughs> of of Gare who who who's kind of like um has has decided that no that is his life i um, i love by the way again we kind of we set up the parallels between like marge and jerry in terms of like marge and you know kind of wanting and, and kind of like being comfortable with what you have i do like Renuk's suggestion that gayer is the anti-marge in that he's he's comfortable with what he is he knows what he is he doesn't want <laughs> anything more than pancakes he, he kind of he takes satisfaction <laughs> in doing his job in the same way that marge does hers um, he's the anti-carl because I, 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 I um, somebody said it earlier, but that the the, the dichotomies of this movie, mm-hmm. but how how perfectly, like the that 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 contrast you mentioned with uh, sixteen lines versus I think like one hundred fifty, one hundred fifty. Yeah, no. It, it, when 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 Renuk said that, I thought about that scene where you have Carl and he's saying like, "Total <laughs> silence. Like <laughs> See how you like it." <laughs> And the fact that he says later on, like, I've been listening to your <laughs> darn tootin' all week. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, and apparently, like, while they were shooting, it was the exact opposite. Storm Mayor was, like, the chatty kind of, like, talkative <laughs> one. And, like, Bishemi was the, I'm, I'm, I'm acting, I'm getting in character, please don't disturb me. Apparently, they actually got pulled over by a Minnesota cop while driving home from the set <laughs> yeah. one day. And apparently, Bishemi remains convinced this day that the Coen staged that. Um, just, <laughs> uh, but uh, and again like we mentioned the wood chipper scene and, and this is probably a nice segue into talking into like the true story aspect of it but like Storm Mayer um, was shooting that scene <laughs> and he remembers having a conversation with the Coens where they're like you know, so you're, you're feeding the, the shoe into it and you, you're pushing down on it with your hand and Storm Mayer's like I grew up on a farm you do not put your hand in a wood chipper like and having to actually go and find a block of wood to do it and explain to the yeah, Coens yeah. that that is how you put a body in a wood chipper, uh, which, I, which I kind of love. It, it's like, um, 
It's like De Niro in, in Goodfellas, where he's like, yeah, if you're stabbing a body in, in a boot, like, it's not going to go in and out so fast. It's going to get stuck on, like, uh, it's like going to hack onto a bit of bone or something, <laughs> or meat. Yeah, yeah. Try it like this. Not, not to preempt. Joe Pesci is like, oh my, what? <laughs> not, not to preempt, like, our, our Christmas special replacing our annual kind of Star Wars episodes. But yeah, when we were, like, when they were doing, like, Lord of the Ring, Jackson was talking to, uh, was it Christopher Lee? And Christopher he's like, Lee about being yeah, stabbed. Yeah. He's like, I want... I want you to make a sound like somebody who's been stabbed in the lungs and this is your last breath and it's going to be like Aah! and and Chris Lee's like that's not what somebody who's been stabbed in the lungs sounds like Peter. Um, he was a badass. Oh, he was during the war. He was yeah, a yeah, yeah, member like, of the Ministry like, of Ungentlemanly Warfare, I believe, is what they called it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, did did uh, Chris Lee is uh, incredible like that. Another example I think of is Dennis. I know we're getting off, yeah, sorry. Hand, but I, I like it. <laughs> it is uh, Dennis Hopper in uh blue velvet where there was like a suggestion of 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 what that gas was going to be and it came from liam lynch sorry from david lynch i beg your pardon um of i think it was going to be helium and he said like oh uh what what about instead if i'm taking drugs and it's like well what sort of drugs and like dennis <laughs> hopper was like well <laughs> opens his pocket <laughs> takes out a notebook what, what do you want <laughs> exactly yeah where he was able to kind of like say this is a thing and david lynch was like oh i didn't i didn't know that <laughs> um, it's just coffee and cigarettes for me yeah milkshakes yeah. like like again like the story that oh, like, red wine yeah was it what was lynch filming where every day he would go and he would go to a like a diner nearby and have a milkshake for everything. lunch yeah <laughs> everything everything that he he's ever done <laughs> yeah. yeah every day of his life yeah, huge, milkshake. huge milkshake for lunch um but to bring it back to kind of fargo because this is this is interesting the true story aspect of it uh and this is something that is kind of again very postmodern, very self-aware very metafictional the extent to which the movie is based on a true story is basically zero to be entirely frank um basically jerry's scam um, is the one part of it that was actually inspired by a true story. Because, and I love this, he was based on a New York car dealer called John McNamara. And between 1980 and 1991, McNamara convinced GMAC to advance him $6.2 billion to pay for two, uh, 248,000 vans that did not exist. The largest Ponzi scheme in history and ended up costing the company four hundred and thirty six million dollars uh which is amazing um in terms but that was apparently like the one part of the story that was true and the wood chipper um is apparently inspired by a murder that took place in minnesota in 1986 uh the murder of heli crafts who was a flight attendant who was brutally murdered and fed into a wood chipper the rest of the stuff um is entirely fictional uh the coens have said some of it is inspired by stuff that we witnessed secondhand growing up but like it was all just kind of drawn but the true story aspect of the film has kind of haunted it since where you have like there's the urban mm-hmm. legend about the Japanese woman who went to uh, Fargo uh, and Bernard in the late 90s and who was found frozen to death in the snow. And there was an entire documentary, I think, called Based on a True Story, which alleged that she had been hunting for the suitcase uh, from the movie, um, which turned out to be an entire fabrication. She was apparently... Uh, depressed there's some suggestion that she may have been suicidal there was no indication that she had actually believed that the movie was true and gone the out treasure and it's Kimiko yeah. isn't it the I haven't actually seen that film uh, yeah sorry the yeah. treasure hunter yeah yeah um, but that, that kind of like bending of fact and fiction which I find interesting because it is it's a strange choice to begin a movie like this with based on a on a true story uh, 
again, I think, yeah, going back to what Renix said, like it is sort of the movie we get following that title card, I think, encourages us to go back and reconsider whether or not that might be might also be a fabrication. As we said, Marge has the moment where she realizes Mike is lying to her and then reconsiders whether Jerry might be lying to her. I wonder if the audience is maybe supposed to have a similar kind of reaction to the title card, or is that a bit too metatextual, do you think? There is a, I think it's probably a bit of both where, you know, and it's it's interesting to, to look at it now, having gone through um, the Netflix age of true crime obsessions and how <laughs> you know we're running out of true crimes to make documentaries about. We need more true crime, new true crime. Like a, it's it like they're really scraping the barrel sometimes and trying to get new angles on. You know, it's like serial killers and psychopaths. It, it always makes for fascinating TV, even if you know whatever take that they have in them because you believe them to be true and because you believe the takes in the documentary to be true similar here when you have a truth truth uh inverted commas to it um you're immediately captivated because there's nothing you know once that title card comes up at the start you and it says the word survivors and, you know, the, the insinuation that this is a very dark and bloody story about to unfold where, like the truth and real life, things don't always make sense. Um, you, you're already kind of hooked in that similar way because you're fascinated by the truth of it. And I think it's, it is such a troll to do that to the audience, but they, they get away with it. <laughs> I, I appreciate the ballsiness of that troll. Yeah. And as well the, that it gets, it gets around it kind of like, this stuff is so crazy, you couldn't make it up. <laughs> you know? But we did. Kind of, like, aren't there always the true stories <laughs> that, are, that are like this? Um, I think back in 2014, Christopher Orr at The Atlantic made an observation which I find interesting, and Andrew is going to be very angry at this observation, but I think there <laughs> might be some truth to it. Already setting I, I know, I'm already lining <laughs> it up. But like, it suggested that following the disappointment of Hudsucker <laughs> and the reaction... Ah, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, oh geez. Um, but like, following oh, the disappointment sake. of, like, for Pete's sake, of, of Hudsucker... And the fact that it was so stylized and it was so, again, aggressive and so Coensy that there was an effort that perhaps the Coens made an effort with Fargo to ground it, to set it in something that is perhaps closer to the real world than something like, say, even like Miller's Crossing, which I love, is very stylized, particularly with the dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's Dash Hamlet kind of style dialogue and stuff like <laughs> that. That like saying this is a true story and things like, you know, again, you could argue it's shot using much more straightforward angles, using longer lenses and with a fixed camera. So it's it's a bit less. There's nothing quite as fancy as, say, you know, that famous shot from Barton Fink where the camera goes down the drain or something like that. It doesn't feel as aggressively. Andrew is just shaking his head in disappointment here. I'm not angry. <laughs> I'm just disappointed. 
There's no way that, like, like I, I know, know that's the way kind of film criticism works, but you can't verify or falsify that, okay. that, that like, and, claim. Andrew, you can ask them what they, and, what they think, and, and, and they can say, and, yeah. and you can, you can either um, accept or disregard their response. That <laughs> Andrew, I do, sorry, I do, sorry. I do love that, like, you, you, you held the Coens over the fire for like they do protest too much by putting nihilists in the Big Lebowski, but it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> when I say I'm not angry, that's a different thing altogether. But I, I do wonder if maybe. Maybe there is something to that um, in the sense of like... I'm totally not angry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry for but, waking people up. No, 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 not that anybody's... Uh, um, so but, but, I, but I do I do wonder, yeah, that like in terms of like grounding, grounding Fargo, because Fargo does feel like it, it unfolds in a world that is, while odd and distinct and Cohen-esque, is perhaps closer to our reality than mm-hmm. something like, oh, brother, where art thou? Or, you know, Blood Simple or Barton Fink or the Hudsucker Proxy. How, how, it does make you wonder how many lies are in the movie. <laughs> like, they, they, in the credits, there is... A okay, Prince symbol! Artist formerly known as Prince. <laughs> yes! He's, uh, he's the storyboard artist. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was meant to play. Um, he was meant to play a dead body, I believe, because he's he's from Minnesota himself, and they just couldn't yeah. make the schedule work. Um, mm-hmm. So they just stuck his kind of famous symbol in the credits as well, which makes it part of the movie's kind of mythology. And again, the fact that like it's set in in Brenyard, which is the home of Paul Bunyan, which is itself a tall tale, and the fact that like it's it's arguably like the American Midwest, where you have this kind of like idea of there being legends and myths and outlaws and kind of like again frontier kind of stuff going on that's it's it's what prince wanted to do like like after purple rain um and and the 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 follow-up whose name i can't remember i think it's also a prince song is it raspberry beret is that what it's called anyway um welcome to prince cast yeah (laughs) but but prince wanted to play something a little more different from like himself so he wanted to play like a big white uh guy (laughs) with glasses um, and th- and that's who we played in this movie. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, you know, like like William H Macy's talked about how hard he had to fight to get the role of Jerry. He had to like stalk the Cohen brothers. What he didn't know is that <laughs> Prince was the first choice for the role. Prince was not the first choice for the role. Well, it's a it says like dead de- dead dead body in field. Yes, which that's is presumably exactly the guy who sees the yeah, Carl driving um, by. Yeah, 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 and runs away and is yeah, shot that's in the back. The, um... That's the storyboard That's artist uh, who is credited down below, Todd Anderson, I think. J. Todd Anderson? Um, and yeah, that's their, I, yeah, that's their, um, the way they've credited <laughs> him twice. <laughs> uh, um, also worth noting that obviously this was the movie for which uh, Frances McDormand won her first of three Oscars, uh, which is remarkable accomplishment. Um, and this was the movie that established her on the map. And I have a huge, huge affection for how McDormand reacted to, like, at the age of 38 years old, becoming, like, the breakout star of the moment in Hollywood cinema. Immediately following this, she agreed to play Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire at Dublin's Gate Theatre, which Mm -hmm. played for a year. Um, She went on to star as a department store clerk in a Sesame Street video for children called Big Bird Gets Lost. She then took an off-off-Broadway role playing the Oedipus myth uh, for an old friend at the Yale Drama School. And her one big film role um, in the two years following Fargo was playing the kindly non-Miss Clavel in Madeline, an adaptation of the classic <laughs> children's book. 
I love how absolutely not into being famous Frances McDormand was. Yes. Like she yes. joined the like She's still in character. Which, <laughs> like she joined the local. She just wants to work hard. Yeah. Well, she joined like a local theater troupe. Like she talked about like when she when she and and kind of her husband uh, Joel started a family. She like she made a conscious effort to like join the local theater, which I adore. The idea of like yeah. going to your small town theater and it's a bunch of like the guy who runs the grocery store and like the the guy who stacks the shelves and the and and Francis McDormand, Oscar winner, is there as well. How hard do you think it was to audition for lead roles um, against McDormand in anything what that they, they put up? Give her a role. Yeah. <laughs> what if they said, "Sorry, Francis, we, we just don't think you're up time. to it for this year." Yeah, yeah. The company yeah, production. Try, try back after. Actually, I watched her Oscar acceptance speech, and um, you know, she has she does she does very good acceptance speeches. Yes. Um, and similar kind of vibe to the the. The, where she kind of she did a big shout out to cinema she gave a shout out to um was polygram was the the uh the company that made this and there was also a working title ha- that year with secrets and lies there was this really impressive category of other films of course there was miramax and there and but they had kirsten scott um scott thomas for best actress and emily watson and um i forget who else but it was just Brenda Blathen as well. Brenda Blathen, that was it, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, And it was just the taking the time to actually say it's not just about market value. It's not just about, you know, how much money it's going to make. It's giving people a chance to be able to go off and make these kind of roles for women, make these kind of films that are different. And that was 1996. And it it made me feel really depressed because... (laughs) It's just not that kind of culture of, of of filmmaking is just getting uh is just evaporating really quickly, especially to make a film like that, which was about five million dollars in nineteen ninety six to make yeah. which was i mean that uh, even with though it was nineteen ninety six that's not a lot of money for that film um and there's not many movies that have done well at the Oscars that have maintained that kind of low level budget. Um, and still had, you know, a, quite an artistic intention at its center, not just necessarily how much money it was going to make at the box office. <laughs> it's a funny comparison, maybe, but uh, I'm thinking about the three cent stamp again. It's like, yeah, that doesn't cost a lot of money, but it is valuable to people. Yes. You know? <laughs> Films like Fargo aren't uh, aren't expensive, but they do mean something. People do need to see things like that <laughs> yeah. in tandem with the 29 or 32 cents. Oh, with the Hoffman's yeah. blue tail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like, like, to give an example, like Fargo grossed $60 million back in 1996. So it, it wow. 10 times its production budget basically yeah. made back, which is astonishing and staggering. And like, and like, I, to, to come back to what Renox said there, like, I, I don't necessarily think the issue is that like small films are evaporating. I think that it's just the boundaries are getting much more rigidly defined where yes. you're either this gigantic studio blockbuster mm-hmm. or arguably like a studio Oscar play. So something like, say, um, you know, like Moonlight. In the Heights or whatever, that sort of stuff. Or yeah. you're now something like Moonlight, which is... Which well, is $8 it, million dollars, which, yeah. um, in the last few years. Which yeah, is, which it, non-adjusted for inflation, which would be like half of Fargo's budget. Um <laughs> But like the idea that there is no middle ground anymore where like 
Moonlight, which I love. We we talked about Moonlight. We love Moonlight. But mm-hmm. it, it is an art house film. Um, mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's not necessarily going to be a cross out breakout hit in the way that say Fargo was. You know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just it's odd that there's there's this is the movie. This is the kind of movie that gets squeezed out. It's it's that kind of cliche of like movies for adults. As much as I hate that term, but the idea mm-hmm. of kind of like a, a well made genre piece that is accessible that is well written that is well cast that has things to say but is also fun and playful um like that's but the I, can, kind of... I can see it not necessarily being quite marketable from the outset either yeah. like it is a it's yeah. still an indie in in how it's written and you could imagine a studio being incredibly nervous about how are we going to sell it there's no nothing star. sexy about no this star, film there's yeah. nothing no star there's no um there's no real action sequence you know apart from that, like that one chase scene that, that is takes place entirely in one card there's nothing high production value about this at all and it's a, you can only assume it just never really set out to be yeah. that kind of film and similarly with moonlight it it's it's hard to make those films if you do set out to keep some kind of market value in mind because you don't get those opportunities generally to go out and make an art house movie that is for adults before people who purely watch cinema it's all, it, it it almost seems it seems sometimes like you have to trick studios into letting you make like good movies as well you know <laughs> that, that, that you know that, that the argument has to either be like well it's not going to cost that much so like it's worth a gamble or actually this is the kind of movie that you want us to make um because it's a comic book movie and then by the time you've actually uh, seen it it's too late ang lee has already made hulk um (laughs) exactly yeah yeah but Um, i think a creative control is a big thing because obviously in in the states a lot of producers have control on final cut and you know you can absolutely trick a studio or a financier into into making them believe that you're making a very different film that has a market in mind and then make the film that you know is going to land with a different audience and may break out in terms of a bigger audience after it gets some recognition at festivals and stuff. But I think the um, yeah. I think at the heart of it, you still need that autonomy in the directors, which is yeah. what happened in the 90s more so than it happens today in the States. Yeah, the 90s was kind of a decade dominated by kind of again you had the emergence of people like Tarantino is a big one Soderbergh Linklater arguably um and then the Coens yeah, as well it's, it's like a, <clears throat> because because the Coen brothers kind of move around um uh, studios a lot so it, it it's 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 kind of it, maybe it's interesting maybe it's not like what what are the studios that give them the license to do what they want to do and why. But it's also notable um, that the Coens, like after Hudsucker Proxy, and again, it's notable the Coens arguably only really break. Sorry, Andrew, I know I'm, I'm not, I'm not kicking it. I love the Hudsucker Proxy, but like after the Hudsucker Proxy, <laughs> like the this, like the Coens' big break mainstream wise in terms of being brand name directors, and we all absolutely love Blood Simple. We all absolutely love Miller's Crossing, Raising Arizona, um, you know Barton Fink. Like, we love those movies, but they only become a brand onto themselves, arguably after Fargo. And I think it's revealing mm-hmm. that, like, the traditional arc for directors like the Coens has been, you establish yourself as a brand, 
you make a couple of low budget movies that either overperform financially or perform very well at awards and you are given a big studio tentpole and you are told go and make this movie things like nolan jumping from memento to insomnia to like the dark knight trilogy things like soderbergh even getting to do his oceans trilogy <laughs> for example which is big and glitzy and glamorous things like chloe Zhao jumping from nomadland to the eternals for marvel and i find it interesting that like the cohen's did that earlier in their career with the Hudsucker proxy and were like but they they didn't get the script like they, they it's like they they didn't know what nolan knew <laughs> you were meant to do and and they they, they like i that was the only, I guess, Warner Brothers movie they got to make. Yeah, but I, and that, 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 but I that, suspect that they was, don't want to. Like, I suspect that their experience yeah. on, like, Hudsucker Prop, and they've talked about this, it's like, they don't want to go, like, for them, that's not the goal. They don't want to do something like, say, Soderbergh's Ocean movies, or... I hate money. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, I, I find it fascinating that, like, of those big directors, like, you look at, like, the amount of money Tarantino gets to do stuff like, say, Django Unchained, or things mm-hmm. like... And, yeah. and the percentage he gets off the back end, in terms of ticket sales from Sony. Like, after, like, like after the Weinstein Company collapsed for very obvious and deserved reasons, like, Tarantino was able to literally wander around Hollywood and say how much money are you going to give me on the gross of this movie that I'm going to make that I want to make for over a hundred million dollars with stars and release in summer. And Mm. there was a bidding war over him. Yeah. And I find it fascinating that the Coens, like despite being arguably, as Renuk said, one of the like landmark directors of nineties cinema have never either pursued that or never had the kind of luxury of that where like, they're, like I think their most indulgent film is probably Hail Caesar, and even that looks relatively cheap, you know? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of down to that kind of branding of directors and who their their uh, target audience is for. You know, like Tarantino is the brand Tarantino has a very very clear audience, and that audience is going to pay a lot of money to see them. The the Cohen brand is going to have a very select audience to see them. And it's, they're going to have new people who are going to watch something like Hail Caesar on face value, not knowing who the Coen brothers are, but yeah. not as many people who would yeah. do that with Tarantino. All right. Before we wrap up, then, just quick to acknowledge, like I, we talked about the Coen brothers, how Coen's-y this movie is. Like, and the fact that it was, like, written side by side with, like, The Big Lebowski. So you get lots of echoes. So things like the kind of, like, the fake kidnapping, which is a plot point in The Big Lebowski. I mean, it's not a fake kidnapping. Because I did see it described. So, sorry, I'm just, I'm quite particular about this. Jean has no idea what's going on. She is being kidnapped for real. But it is an orchestrated kidnapping. Yes, where a stage managed. Yeah, a staged kidnapping where things are not what they seem. But I saw it described as a fake kidnapping somewhere before and went, no, it's not. That she, poor she woman gets is kidnapped. being kidnapped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's being terrorized. Yeah, She's not in exactly. on it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, there is... Actually, a- how how great would that have been if, if Jean was actually... The mastermind. The <laughs> Things would have been so much more easier yeah. if they had had a good marriage. Yes. Where they could go, look, we need money. Let's not ask your dad. Let's do this, this scheme <laughs> yeah. together and we'll work as a together. team. Yeah. Uh, I love that sequence, by the way, where Jerry sits down with his father. It's like, I want to provide for Gene and Scotty. And like his father-in-law Gene looks at him and goes, Gene and Scotty have nothing to worry have about. To worry about. <laughs> yeah. um, he's so good, Harv uh, Presnell, is yeah. it? Like he's a, uh, I, I love that these archetypes in Coen Brothers movies, the Lebowskis, the, um, there's always uh, that Type. Sam Elliott character, yes, almost yeah, like, well, like well, the old-fashioned the, um, cowboy actor. 
or not even it's the capitalist it's Mm -hmm. the guy and it's it's in Hudsucker Proxy it's in Fargo it's the guy in the big office with uh, the graying giant who is that's kind of the in ways this kind of socialism of the Coens a bit is is because of this um the, the, you know the the higher in in the absolute higher part of the food chain is this guy at a desk and that's I'm always sure. what I really like about them is that that's how it all trickles down yeah. from this capitalist figure from from the top down it's the F. Marie Abraham character in Inside Louis yeah. Davis who says I don't see a lot of money here yeah. Yeah. No, it's the studio system in Hail Caesar yeah. like it's, it's yeah. Eddie Mannix in his office but reporting upwards still um, yeah, which yeah. again is and it but sorry, the, in terms of like the, the kind of, and we probably should actually talk very briefly about Jean, actually, because one of the things that I find interesting with the movie and one of the things that was a point of kind of contention with it is its treatment of Jean, where mm-hmm. like you get these shots of her in the back of the car when like Gare is chasing the other car and he mm-hmm. breaks suddenly and she falls forward or the sequence where they let her out of the car in the snow and she's running and Carl is kind of laughing at her. La- yeah. I remember my dad particularly, I, I said this to my partner the other night, was um, that scene, which is like we were laughing at it because it is kind of it, the slapstick of it in the physical yeah. comedy is kind of funny because she's making all these really kind of, you know, like desperate <laughs> kind of sounds. And it's it, you're feeling so sorry for her. And yet it's it's I remember distinctly being a kid and my dad watching it and going, that's so cruel, that's so cruel. And yeah. And it is, it's like you're kind of torn between, am I laughing at her as much as um, Carl or am I possibly in, in Geyer's role where he's feeling sorry for? And I guess that's the kind of the the start of his arc towards how he's going to kill her, which we see off screen. Because I one of the things I've made a note of that I love is that moment where he's watching her breathing. It's so creepy. And Carl is banging the TV in the background and it's just like he's working up this sort of you know godlike moment of taking her out of her misery or something it's so creepy um, and the fact that it happens off screen as you point out like not only in yeah. terms of like you know the the la- the minimizing the violence towards her physically on screen and towards the, women on yeah, screen on as screen, well all the violence happens towards the men. men yeah which is which is an important choice um but i think it's it's also even things like how offhanded it is like you know carl comes home and discovers her lying on the ground with the money and it's like yep just in case you didn't get how horribly chaotic and violent and and how thoughtless and like unempathic these people are yeah this was always how it was going to end there was no way what did you think was going to happen yeah it like it's not even like a big deal carl's not even upset about it he's just like oh what happened oh she just wouldn't shut up so i killed her it's like okay now can we talk about the money in the car uh which is yeah yeah, the the fact as well that jerry was going to you know conclude the deal when the money is handed over and like the return of the wife isn't uh, like part of that transaction he never figured that out like the logistics of who how is that going to work because he's just the money is the is the the end result yeah it's all that he's focused on um and sorry yeah we kind of got on this tangent in terms of like talking about like overlap in terms of cohen themes but it is notable that you have like several scenes that kind of echo and reverberate so things like the botched 
um, orchestrated kidnapping. Um, and things like Walter with checking his gun, I thought of, like, you know, the father-in-law here checking his gun and trying to, like, pull a fast one at a hostage handover and it going horribly, horribly wrong. Things yeah. like the casting of Bashemi and Stormare from Miller's Crossing and the swapping of the smart guys. The recurring joke the Coens have that run through their filmography about, like, Bashemi dying and his remains getting progressively <laughs> smaller every time. So, like, he dies in Miller's Crossing. Here you have, like, the remains of a foot. Um, and I think in, obviously, The Big Lebowski, you have him turned to ashes, and those ashes get kind of scattered <laughs> to the wind. Um, even things like particular shots and kind of sequences are stolen. So, like, when, you know, Mrs. Lungard kind of, like, flees into the bathroom, or Jean flees into the bathroom, she hides in the showers, and they check the window. In Blood Simple, Abby went out the window, and Visser checked the shower as well. So I kind of like the idea that you have like the, yeah. the Cohen's like writing within I think again a Cohen-esque style which I, I really like as well at one point Carl says circumstances have changed I was like that's uh that's a Lebowski line new shit that's come to light yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just stood out to me in my most recent rewatch i was like oh circumstances have changed yeah, yeah. that's the, the crux uh, of every cohen narrative is that circumstances change yeah. was it raising arizona goes to like funny shapes for, to funny looking you know mm. um as well and things like that mm. but like i do i do like that like the cohen's tend to and again it's it's that argument that the cohen's write the same script twice and you can frequently well, that's just your opinion yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> but like the idea that you see these duologies so things like and yeah, because yeah. they write them at the same time so like like was it like no country for old men and burn after reading are like evil distorted warped twins of each other which is kind of amazing <laughs> and this and the big lebowski are kind of like partners as well uh, but is there anything else you want to talk about anything we haven't discussed already jumping out at say i, I next actually funnily have a, a list of things that definitely we don't have all the time to talk about but one thing that um one thing that um, definitely needs to be talked about is just how fantastic they are at casting yes, small roles. Mm. It's just uh, like <laughs> it, there is a Tumblr or a, there is a page somewhere that is dedicated purely to supporting cast of um, of of Coen Brothers movies, but not necessarily like the supporting cast of like like a smaller role like Norm or something. Norm, son of a Gunderson, but the. Um, the roles of like the guy that comes in to argue about the true coach yes. or Stan Grossman. Yeah. And the side note of Stan Grossman, it, I was watching Little Miss Sunshine. There's Brian Cranston plays the Stan Grossman. And I always wondered, is it a nod to Fargo or something? But, uh, but just they are so good at finding these amazing actors for these tiny moments that are so significant and so memorable that that's what I, I just love about their films so much is when you have those like old Texas women running a motel or doing something they just you remember their faces so perfectly they're like cartoons or something very simple understated performances as well where that's like required like like, like the the guy saying and so he said to me um I'm, I'm going crazy out here at the lake. <laughs> I said, that's not this kind of place. And he said, well, what do you think I am? Do you think I'm some kind of jerk? Except he didn't say jerk. <laughs> Mr. Mora. That, that could have not been an actor. Yeah. You know? And 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 it's a, like, if that's the case, it's all the better for us. But it, it's perfect um, casting because it feels like, it feels real, you know? Yeah, that's, and the true coat scene is... It's, it's just the, the one two, man weaker than actors. Jerry, like the the one guy Jerry can bully. <laughs> <laughs> That's and the wife as well. Like even just watching the wife's the, that actress's face throughout that scene is and the tension writhing up. It's just really 
um, like these moments, they do matter. Like those actors need those that the whole movie is about them in that moment. And it's just um, it's it, no it, it, even down to the kid as well. And, and Jean, there's just everybody in this is perfectly cast, perfectly cast. Um, and the I can't remember. There was something else. Oh, yes. I felt like we needed to have a shout out to the displays of um, of Midwestern cuisine at that buffet. Yes. Like, the, what, yeah. what is it? Yeah. The, um, the pan, the loving fish? pan across. Yeah, <laughs> There's this particular lutefisk or something that's like a, it's a gelatinous uh, fish cooked in lye. It's a really, really acquired taste from the Midwest. It's kind of, it's Nordic and they kind of perfected it in the Midwest. They reference it in Drop Dead Gorgeous as well. And then there's the chicken fricassee and the Swedish meatball. All of it looks disgusting, piled on top of plates, but it felt like it merited discussion. Because they're all Swedes, isn't it? I literally, yeah, no, yeah. that's what the accent is. It's kind of Nordic. Gundersons yeah. and the Staffsons and, and uh, Lundegaard. And, yeah. and, and some great product placement for Arby's as well. And another nice contrast between yeah. Jerry and, and Hardy's yeah. as well. But another nice contrast between Marge and Jerry is that Jerry's son goes off to eat McDonald's by himself. And let me tell you, they're not drinking milkshakes. But the fact that, you know, Marge and Norm eat Arby's together. Um, Except when she's in the car and she's... um. And that was actually yeah. the one time she's kind of, you know, like she's she's kind of cranky is yeah. when she's waiting for food in the driving when she's <laughs> yes. yelling in the thing. That's the one time where, you know, unless where she's not prompted to be cranky, where she's going to be cranky. Like, hello. She probably doesn't. She probably doesn't like Hardy's. Hardy's Carl's Jr. She, and she wanted there she, to be an Arby's, Arby's, but there wasn't. But there wasn't an Arby's or it was closed. Or Darn <laughs> uh, I just really yeah. love, there's so many good small character details. Like something that I'm always struck by is when you see Jerry blunting his pencil when he's filling in the serial numbers. It's such a good little moment. Like he has always been dishonest. He's always been a sack. Like he's got these little tricks. Um, yeah. And it just, it always strikes me when I watch it. I'm like, I love this the little, I love golf pad as well. Which like, does he love golf? Yeah. Is this just, this is just something that's been knocking around the office. <laughs> I'm just always struck by it. I love it. But also just William H. Macy uh, in general. I think the first thing I ever saw him in was Pleasantville, which comes out after Fargo. Yes. But and, there's And Jean is in that as well. Is she as well? Yeah, yeah, I think she plays his, his wife in oh, that, I, if I can remember correctly. Yeah, because he has that that kind of 50s everyman vibe, which obviously works yeah. so well <laughs> in Pleasantville, but then also in this, in that that's the role he's kind of trying to perform and failing at horribly. Like, he has this kind of wide-eyed, like, you know, cars. All-American all American, husband. Yeah. Hustler. Yeah, the salesman like he he always reminds me of Jack Lemon in Glengarry Glen Ross yeah, because it's the energy. panic behind the the clean facade of like the, the salesman the confident salesman with the panicky mm. eyes you know I think that he hates himself mm. as well his self contempt <laughs> is just like written all over his face yeah. like in in that conversation mm. they really do just nail that um, character I think in his performance and in these details like scuffing the pencil like he is this failed yeah. capitalist. That is so typical of American cinema. There's one one a moment where, you know, like, is he flirting with Marge? Is he flirting with the girl in in his own way? In the um, it, I can't remember the restaurant they go to, and he goes, "How are you today?" And she's kind of like, eh. 
you know, it's it's like there's this kind of there is this wish for him to be outside his life, outside his wife. If his wife dies, that's a okay byproduct. There's there's just little whispers of it across the way. And when they did develop, I thought they did such a great job of developing that character in the series reinventing the him Martin as the Freeman Martin Freeman character um, and gave him all of those kind of edges that you can kind of see traced in a little bit here as well. Go and I'll, I'll say one final thing, and it's related to what Stacey said about kind of failed capitalism. And I, I, I like this movie because it, it's, it's, it's a kind of a period piece. It's a 1987 uh, failed um, uh, capitalism uh, <laughs> uh, movie. It's a little bit like Robocop. <laughs> Um, we got in, we got in there context. in the end. Yeah, we got there in the end. Yeah, yeah. No, so I I, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, all right then. Yeah. Um, so that about wraps it up. Then, unless there's anything else anybody wants to talk about, anything we haven't discussed or anything coming out of people. I I I will say very 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 briefly, um, just to to make it seem like less of a perfunctory Robocop reference. It feels like now the com the the. I mean, it, it, since then, it felt at times where that, that movies were kind of saying that the conversation is over and the argument is lost and the capitalism is fine now and that we don't kind <laughs> of, we, we, you know, we don't oppose it in our movies. Um, anyway. Um, well, that's, that's the... Yeah, that's we the, accept it's there. Yeah, well, that, that's, <laughs> that, that, yeah. that's the end of history kind of 90s stuff. It's, it's the stuff that you see in Tarantino and Soderbergh's work as well, which is like, well, we got to the end of history. It's just this big white blank canvas what the hell is going on? <laughs> what was the point of it? What the hell are the consequences it's, of this cap- thing that we've all bought into? Capitalism has, has, has won. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> the end of history. War. Yeah, that's it. Like, there's and nothing there, afterwards. It's not that there's a responsibility now for yeah. capitalism to kind of, you know, look after <laughs> its people. It's it's kind of like, no, this is just our Let, let, let capitalism <laughs> enjoy its victory. Stop trying to yeah, rain on yeah. its parades. And no, look, China are capitalists now. <laughs> Let's make movies for them. Yeah. Um, anyway, um... Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. Um, <laughs> so I think that about wraps it up then. Let's think. On, that right. note. <laughs> on that note. Yeah, <laughs> on that note. Sorry, guys. No, no. I, like, I, I think there is something there. Again, like the white kind yeah. of spaces, the emptiness, the idea of being in the middle of nowhere. Again, that kind of existential stuff you see in a lot of 90s movies, which are like, yep, the Cold War is over. The ideological bulwark at which we've kind of measured capitalism against has collapsed. So now we have to reckon with like what capitalism is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the that'll be fun and interesting and wholesome and not at all depressing, bleak and violent. Was, yeah, I think it was it was it was kind of like in 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 the eighties they were starting to realize like oh we're yeah. we're we're winning we're, we're winning. going to win but like at yeah. what cost you know we're yeah. bankrupting the Soviet Union but but who are we and what yeah. are we doing and are we okay with that and all the Reagan like, night values and of of those kind of fat of midwestern you know homely values have a very dark side underneath them as well um yeah and i I do always see the cohen's as being some there there is an inherent socialism to their work and how they kind of how they seem to be having an underlying critique of capitalism especially in the big lebowski as well it's and it's always done in a kind of um in retrospect to take, making it take place a couple of years before the film yeah. was actually made as well which I think is really clever Isn't there a huge stock market crash in 1987? It's something that's just come to mind Black yeah. Monday yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that's yeah. before or after the events of Fargo but it's probably haunting the margins either way, right? That maybe that's what the, where, where this desperation what comes Jerry's from What Jerry's about yeah. GMC, yeah. 
GMAC are making more phone calls. No. <laughs> um, That's why they were able to let that go for so long and he was able to get this plan together. Could, yeah. <laughs> They're busy with other scams no right one now. Was paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, then. So that about wraps it up then. So before we go, what we ask is we ask our guests to recommend something, something you're enjoying at the moment. If it's something related to the movie we discussed, something unrelated to the movie that we discussed. So give Renuk and Stacey a chance to think about it. I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. <laughs> I always forget uh, about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that, that's why I go first. So Stacy is like, going panic. second. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's fine. Sort of like kind of panic. That the one one thing that somebody uh, me just mentioned. I know. Sorry, Stacy originally was Black Monday, <laughs> um, and there is a show on um, I think Showtime in the US. I don't know how you watch it there. But it's on Now TV here in Ireland and the UK. Is this the one with Don Cheadle? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I quite enjoy it. I, yeah. I find it really funny. Um, there are a lot of great jokes in this. There are a lot of great people in this. Um, and there's a second season now. So watch the first season that I can recommend. Um, with 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 very little qualification, and check out the second season, which is what I'm also doing at the moment. And other 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 than that, um. Darren recommended Barb and Star. It, it's um, it's fun. Um, it's 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 not it's not it's it's not it's not stellar, but 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 you know you'll 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 definitely get some enjoyment out of it. Um, and 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 in terms of Coen Brothers movies, they did a remake of Lady Killers. Um, I'm going to recommend the the Ealing comedy. Uh, uh, Lady Killers from 1955. It's got Alec Guinness and Peter Sellers in it. It's got Frankie Howard. You might remember out of like the Carry On movies, um, and it and and it's um terrific and funny and dark, um, and weird and it's it's great. Um, I I enjoy it a lot. And I think I'm not sure. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I think it might be less kind of um. Uh, problematic to contemporary viewers and some other Ealing comedies perhaps mm-hmm. um, uh, but but as I say it's been a while since I've seen it yes I did also forget about the Lady Killers when I said Hudsucker Proxy is consensus second worst Cohen <laughs> yeah, that was cons- the first one that came yeah, to, it's, to mind yeah 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 no so in to- so it's it's yeah it's Lady Killers uh, intolerable cruelty and then Hudsucker Proxy but Stacy, what would you recommend <laughs> Uh, I was I was actually thinking about Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar as well. I was like, should I recommend that? It has very little connection to Fargo, although the women are from, as Andrew mentioned earlier, somewhere in the Midwest, uh, I think. Um, I actually would recommend Intolerable Cruelty. Now, maybe that's a controversial suggestion because Darren has just said it's the second worst Cohen's movie. I don't agree. By consensus, Darren is like... Oh, okay. Darren has just said that the consensus is that it's the second worst. I'm not... This is like the Hudsucker Pro... I am not raining on anybody's parade. I was just providing context. I apologize. Well, just... Darren is like, I'm not the consensus. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pulling a real Jerry moment there. (laughs) Sorry. Well, I watched it last summer and I had only ever heard bad things about it. And I just threw it on like summer evening. I was on holidays, I think. I was like, oh, I'll watch Intolerable Cruelty. It's on Netflix. It's it's a it's good fun. Like if you're not watching it, you know, looking for the same kind of for the quality. (laughs) (laughs) But it it is like it's it's a thing you don't have to really turn your mind on to really kind of 
there are really, really lovely moments yes. in it. Like, it's, it's, it's like a, with that kind of broad criticism of capitalism that Rena kind of mentioned there as well, you know, in terms of yeah. positioning it. Yeah, you know what? It's the thinking man's Barb and Star go to Vista del Mar in terms of there's some witty dialogue oh. and some some. Is it the 30s. Is it the cinema bros? Um, <laughs> Barb, Barb and Star go to Vista del Mar. Uh, going in with low expectations, I enjoyed it a lot. It's a it's a fun little movie. I also would say the Fargo TV show is pretty good. I've only seen the first three seasons. There's been a fourth season mm-hmm. uh, since I stopped watching it, but they are. It is an anthology series, so you don't have to watch the series mm-hmm. in any particular order. They are not sort of uh, narratively related to each other, although they are obviously set in and around the same kind of geographic area as Fargo and it's it's I I really like it I think it's a, a well-made show um the first season is the only one that maybe really overlaps with the movie the others are kind of more self-contained midwestern they overlap stories. with each other kind of stuff is the thing so like the first one other. gets from the movie to the first one and then the second and third kind of spin off the first yeah pretty much yeah so it's like you don't really have to have seen each series to enjoy because yeah. i would recommend season two above the others yes. at the moment yes. season two is a, is a master it's yes. incredible it is, mm. yes the characters are brilliant mm. the gerhards the casting uh, it, is astonishing mm. like the, the casting is so good yeah, the casting um, is cohen level like in one, the second yes. season it's amazing mm. kirsten dunce <gasps> Um, and and, and, uh, and Jesse Jesse Plemons yes, and Jesse Plemons. Yes, I just it's even a, just it's the music. Call, it's a Colin show as well. Um, uh, Colin Hanks is in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's right. Actually, so. that's my that's <laughs> one big criticism I would have about that show is I was talking to a friend the other day. Uh, is that I think he gets um, this is obviously a spoiler for the show, so tune out if you haven't seen the show. But um, he he gets the heroic moment the kind of characterful yeah. moment of killing um the Anton Sugar character the, the yeah, Bill, yeah the, the Billy Bob Bill Thornton character um and he and in a way that's kind of against the, the the beauty of the film because you you have this really great female cop character this pregnant cop character who um doesn't get that fulfilling moment because it tracks back to his you know, what's he going to do as this masculine figure in this family? He needs to be the man to step up and mind his family. And I kind of always thought like that should have obviously have been her. But that was that other than that, I think it's it's done with love for all of the detail and the the lore and the tone and even down to how they just reference those lines and those Cohen Easter eggs. It's just the fact that that's a thing makes Fargo um like incredibly influential for something that kind of feels like it should never have been because it's so, <laughs> so innocuous and normal. <laughs> well, like that, that's like again we talked about like the death of movies like this. It, they are prestige television, so it almost feels appropriate that like this project has migrated to prestige television mm. and become a franchise in this weird IP-driven age. <laughs> Speaking of IP, uh, Ewan McGregor is is in, in Fargo well, season three playing yeah, twins. Two Ewan playing McGregor playing. and David <laughs> David Tulis as well. Ewan McGregor, um, if you will. <laughs> I haven't seen the fourth one, but by all accounts, it is really great. And Jesse Buckley is really great in it as well. So Ben Whishaw, Chris Rock. Yeah, Jesus. Sorry. But anyway, so Rena, what would you recommend for listeners? So yeah, it it did a quick kind of panic rattle through (laughs) my head of what I've been watching. I've been trying to move country in the last um, 
month or so. I'm, I'm moving to Germany in the next few weeks. So time has been limited because I've also been finishing two films and I've, I've finished writing a TV show. That's a humble brag. That's very deliberate. I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, but... don't apologize. We'll, we'll be coming back to that in a second. Um, oh, well, that's a, that's a natural plant to it, obviously. It's succeeding. You know, you're setting up and paying off. We are so shocked we that you have time for this nonsense. Well, otherwise, how will I actually have watched a film? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not watching That is a service like... that we provide. We like will if... force people to watch movies. Yeah. That is, yeah. And it's even, especially if they're ones you've seen before, so you can kind of like, oh, okay, I'll just go on my phone and check an email there. But um all of the TV shows I've been watching have been shows I've been are just things I can kind of I don't need to pay attention to. Um, but with that, it, it, one of the films that I saw in Berlin Alley uh, that is coming up, I think it's got an Irish UK release. Uh, I can't I can't remember where it is. Is a horror film called Censor. Um, Neve with it. Neve Algar is in it and she plays it's kind of very Peter Strickland-esque which is right up my Ooh. my line of things completely kind of here. along the line of Barbarian Science Studio where it's this film this video there's a UK film censor at the time of the video nasties and the kind of hysteria built around it and she starts to imagine um there being part of her troubled past is coming uh, out through one of this kind of mysterious movie and it's very hard to trace where this movie is from and it's just a really it's a low budget film it's kind of that um those that line of really great kind of uk horror that is very low budget but just it, they're given the permission to really make the film that they really want to make and it's just built from a love of, of those movies and those horrors and it builds to a really fantastic really fantastic ending and Neve is fantastic in it as well. I'm got to stop saying fantastic. There's other words, but uh, the director is a is a woman called Prano Bailey Bond, and I think it's it's going to be something I think a lot of film fans will definitely like. So definitely watch out for that. And to you have a strong censor its appeal. Oh, very good. Um, <laughs> the um, uh, the other two um things would be two albums that have come out recently two Irish albums by A. Smith uh, called uh, Last Animals and Fears who has this really great album called Eha and they're just kind of like there's a lot of really good Irish music coming out in the last year but they're out in the last couple of weeks and they're well worth well worth uh, checking out completely thank you no, I'm definitely definitely going to check out Sensor. Yeah. How did they, um, do you can it's available online? Uh, it won't be available um, for quite a while, I think. It, until it's during June. the film festival. Yeah, it's during the film festival circuit. So it may actually be out by the time you're listening to this. Then, if it's out in June, yeah, a major I think release. it's it, can it, I buy so a subscription the... to like a film festival. Is that yeah, you can do, can well, do. Yeah, but you, the film festival has to be going on. Is the thing. Right. So, like, will it show at Cannes? Or, like, <laughs> do you think will, we can get into Cannes? I think we can get into Cannes. I think the 250 can go to Cannes. Um, I think they probably want the money. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> that, that our tickets would cost. Um, um, but I think it's out in, it's out, from all accounts, I think it's out in June. I'm not sure what the platform is, but in the UK and Ireland, uh, the release date appears perfect. to be June. So it should be out fairly soon. So it should be out by the time this is out then, which is by great. Time's out. Which is great. We should go to the right can because I think they also have like a porno film 
um, uh, festival. Why um, a few festivals? Yeah, why, why am I not <laughs> yeah. surprised that that was the one? Anyway. <laughs> I've, I've seen enough Euro trash to know these things. <laughs> you are a man of the world, Andrew, in many, many senses. Uh, very quick recommendations from myself. Um, obviously, I will second the recommendation of Fargo, particularly the second season of Fargo. Another TV show that I think of when I think of the Coens is actually uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Um, in fact, I think the first mm-hmm. season of Breaking Bad has an episode actually called A No Rough Tough, uh, a no rough Stuff Type Deal, which is actually a quote from Fargo as well. But I think of, like in particular, Better Call Saul, which is is a phenomenal piece of television which is very much kind of Cohen's-esque in that it's these bumbling people who are motivated by very small very petty concerns that have consequences that spiral outwards from them and have like disastrous consequences and it does that thing that yes Darren is very fond of which is I love a good montage and I like watching people who are like good at their job and people who have like a process and procedure and that they follow so like Better Call Saul is very very good at showing people doing stuff in ways that are methodical cool clever and informative and instructive so yes i would wholeheartedly recommend that um all right then i think that about wraps it up but before we go renuk no humble bragging what are you up to what yeah. are you doing where can we find it what are these humble brag away. No, no don't be humble <laughs> no, that, I'm, not, I'm not saying no humble bragging i'm saying i'm not saying no bragging i'm saying no humble bragging like where where is your stuff at where Omni brag. Yeah. go to town well um hopefully by the time um this airs we'll be able to share some news of uh, a festival um premiere for a new short film that have made that's the hope anyway we've entered a few so we'll see what happens um i've just finished a another short film called don't go where i can't find you I don't know how you guys feel about long titles, but do let me know if you have any strong feelings before I do put it out in the world. Um, it's I again like long titles. I like long titles, especially for short films. <laughs> um, but this I like one the is band "Don't Stop or We'll Die." Don't stop um, or we'll die. Um, I kind of get stuck on it halfway and have to remember what the actual words are because it's very hard to even abbreviate in a in an email. Uh, exchange as well but it's it's a horror film I sort of pitching it as a kind of a hypersensory ghost story that is again very Peter Strickland-esque in terms of its reference it's about a composer who who creates a score to commune with the dead and it's it, it it's this great score that we created with two musicians from Ergodos uh Garrett Schuldice and Benedict Schlepper Connolly. Um, it stars Marie Ruan and Julia Crosby and Stephanie Dufresne. And it as this um, of a queer love triangle between dead partner, composer, and this woman that is the guilt that she's actually harboring that she needs to work through um, and kind of let herself let herself move on from. Um, so that's that, that's been the last couple of months and we're hoping it's looking good. We're just going into doing the grade and bits and things now and hoping that it gets a nice juicy premiere somewhere coming up What's soon. What's the title again? Don't Go Where I Can't Find You. Um, and, and like... well, I'm looking forward to that. I think we, 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 we spoke when, when, when we were on our way back that, that, that time. So no, I'm, I'm look, It's I'm been knocking about a while. COVID is kind of... 
there's been delays. Uh, <laughs> have you heard about these delays? Yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled that we now know the changed. Changed. Thrilled that we now know the score. But like, I think also is Break Us uh, more available now than it would have been last time you were on, possibly. Not quite yet. We okay. sold it internationally to a distributor, so they have it for the year before we can release it online. Yeah. So it's still going to be a bit of bit of a while to, to until it comes out. It's uh, yeah. By the time this airs. There is a, a screening of it online, but that it it'll it the time will have gone oh, by then. Expired, sorry. Um. So yeah, that's kind of still knocking about, which is really really nice. Um. And yeah, hoping for it to come out online because it's it's been a couple of years as well. And like, uh, and again, this is really cool because I always love when I text people and they're like, "I'd love to do the podcast, but I'm busy doing actual <laughs> really cool work." Uh, I think when I talk when I talked to you, you were directing some television as well. I think so. Is that I was I was writing six yeah. episodes, um, co-writing six episodes of a new comedy series called The Lido, which is in development with RTE. Um, with actress Nadia Ford. It's Nadia's baby and I'm on it as lead writer. It's uh, the first big TV job I've done where you're writing um, six episodes of a comedy series. I'm not sure I'm funny. I think I, I as a person, I'm, I'm hilarious in that the things that happen to me are funny. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, it, it, comedy is a whole new thing because I want to make those films that are about hypersensory dark uh dark matter um so trying to find the levity in it is is but it's it's a tv series about chippers in italian irish chippers in the 80s uh love sex and bad sausage from the title yeah from the title that's terrific but amazing it's, that it's, is... uh, it's, it's been fun doing research mm. for that um, <laughs> because can. I do love chips <laughs> so much the, the, oh when is fish and chips day <laughs> no, we, can day we can and cover it for day. that actually we, uh, and Stacey what about yourself what are you up to what are you doing uh, I think it's unfair I have to follow that because nothing at all is interesting <laughs> as what Rihanna is up to uh, I'm online mostly sometimes I'm on the Escapist movie podcast with Darren Sometimes I'm reviewing movies on Letterboxd. I'm trying to make a point of like putting my reviews on Letterboxd uh, with the username Silver St. Groud. And that's also my Twitter handle. I'm over there talking nonsense most of the time. But... I have to get on Letterboxd. That's like, I, I, every time I see a really good review, it just feels like that's a whole, you know, because there has been IMDb for so mm -hmm. long. Uh, this is kind of where you find like-minded people and like-minded recommendations that um, are in your kind of small niche of preferred films. And yeah, the, a lot of the reviews that are there are works of art between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, but just really well informed. It's just a really, um, seems like a really good place to just actually explore that. So that's a whole rabbit hole I, need, I really need to, to go I, down. I mean, not not to spoil, we are approaching episode 250 of the 250, at which point we will switch gears and transition from covering the IMDb 250 to covering the Letterbox 250. What? No, no, that is not happening. That is, that, is not, that is not happening. For the rest of time. For all time. We're just going to find lists that contain 250 movies and just keep swapping between them. Yeah. We, we have a list of lists. Yeah. And there are 50 lists days. on there. And when we get to those, that's, that's when we're done. Um, yeah, we're gonna. They, I figure we they could probably turn us into an AI. <laughs> yeah, you point. could like feed feed. Like if we have two hundred and fifty yeah, episodes, feed them into and a we're machine. always interrupting people. Yeah. They have enough um, content <laughs> yeah. of, of of us talking. Yeah. 
to to know the the general idea yeah. um, of how it goes but and also how it the reacts. top two fifty changes frequently, right? Yes. So there yes. is still room yeah. in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. it does. Listen, <laughs> listeners could not hear, but Andrew's soul left his body with that concession of a yes. <laughs> oh, so you'll never be done. We spoke about this. no. We will never. We will no, never, no. We are. Other people have attempted this, uh, <laughs> but they've they've done it more sensibly. Like where 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 they, they took where a snapshot taken, of like, the, the list, fifty at a snapshot in time, and then decided for the next five years, guests. yeah, and don't have guests either. Yeah, it is a richer, more futile experience. No, like, what we're doing. I actually, yeah, no, I, I um, honestly do. I think like having people on who know what they're talking about. Um, I love yeah, it. No, I think it's great. Um, and also that yeah, the fact the list is dynamic. Darren and, and I would kill each other. <laughs> Well, if we <laughs> um, like yeah this podcast we'd still be arguing about the Hudsucker proxy um if we didn't have guests <laughs> we absolutely would um, should we leave yeah. off yeah. i love the Hudsucker proxy not enough um <laughs> but yes you don't like it the right way yeah. <laughs> all right so that about wraps it up then shut up about the consent yeah. <laughs> stop trying to provide context who cares about context um but trying so yes we will be back next week um, where to celebrate hopefully Independence Day we'll have the wonderful Scott Mendelson from Forbes will be joining us to discuss the 1990 Captain America movie oh, oh yes amazing. <laughs> oh wow how are we gonna watch that I have no idea that's why we're recording this far in advance <laughs> that's the hopeful bit. yeah that's it's about like Independence Day will fall. Yeah. Um, but we may not watch this movie. Yeah, yeah, we may end up watching Superman 4 with Scott Mendelson, but we'll figure it so out. Long, so long as aliens don't attack. Yeah, ID4. <laughs> um, but thank, yeah. thank you so much, guys. Really enjoyed this. Really fun discussion. Follow us on SoundCloud, on Letter, on Stitcher, on iTunes, wherever good podcasts are found. Um, I think I said Letterbox. We're not actually on Letterbox, But uh, take, take a look. Go on Letterbox <laughs> anyway. It, yeah. yeah, why not? If you can find us, you can follow us. Take it easy, guys. Thank you so much. Bye. Hey. Thank you so much, guys. That was fun. I enjoyed that.